Hello, hello, and welcome to yet another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I am joined by my good friend and co-host, David Russell. How you doing, David? Hey, buddy. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. We opened a big can of worms last week, and we got a lot of people here <laughs> yep, for yep. this week. <laughs> the beautiful thing is all we had to do was wind things up, and, and then we just get out of the way. We just invite other people to wade in our mess. Yes, that's true. Love it. We're like the bad uncles uh, who take <laughs> the kids for the day and we feed them a bunch of sugar <laughs> and then we give them back to the parents and say, hi. <laughs> well, I mean, after you guys put me on the uh, epistemological uh, spectrum all over the place yet last week, <laughs> uh, it, I mean, it's it was bound to happen. Yep. Well, <laughs> uh, today we've got uh, some excellent guests to help clear things up and this is just the first week of panel discussions there will be another week of panel discussions uh but this week we have got dale glover from uh rsm rsm uh real seekers ministry dale how you doing i'm good hey david how's it going Hey, uh, how, uh, what's, what's your, uh, particular, what do you want to plug and, um, how do people find you? Um, so, so yeah, as most of your listeners probably already know. So I, I have, um, the host of real seeker ministries, um, and you can find that, uh, real seeker ministry dot wordpress.com. I think, I hope, I don't even know my own website, but, <laughs> um, so yeah, you can, you can contact there. I have a YouTube channel called real seekers as well with, where I post up videos of, you know, discussions, debates, or solo shows on, on various topics uh, that I do related to the philosophy of religion. All right. Very good. We've got uh, Andrew uh, Knight from Still Unbelievable and uh, Procinium and uh, The Dark Web. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, appreciate you letting me come back for a uh, for a second week. I expect your audience to shrink commensurately. Uh, so yes, uh, I podcast in a couple of different places. Uh, still unbelievable in Persinium. You can reach out to both of those podcasts at uh, reasonpress at gmail dot com, and uh, you can keep up with some of the news uh, going on with us at uh, reasonpress dot net. Some of you will be familiar. Uh, with the book project that that David Johnson and I participated in a couple of years ago now, that's the that's the book still unbelievable. It was a response book to Justin Brierley's book, and on that front, we are looking at uh, a second edition of Still Unbelievable, and we've got a couple of new books in the works. So uh, be on the lookout. And uh, Dave, thanks for having me back for a second week. Sure. And just to be clear, oh. I didn't let you back. You're holding my family hostage. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, but it didn't have anything to do with, with broadcasting. Uh, by yeah. the way, David Russell didn't mean to, to didn't mean to put you on the hot seat last week. It oh, was it's supposed fine, to be a man. friendly engagement. So. It's OK. It was friendly enough. I don't you know, I enjoy those type of conversations. Uh, you know, I mean, even though, you know, it was a bit all of, we we did go all over the place. But I was happy that we did because it opened up what we needed to get it opened up. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, and uh, we have a very special guest. He's been on the show uh, once before, and I haven't had him back. Uh, no particular reason, just hasn't happened, but it's happened now. Mr. Mac Attack. 
Mr. Attack, hey. how you doing? What's up, David? How are you? I'm doing well. Um, unlike everyone else, I really don't have a website to plug, but I'm glad to be here. And uh, I guess I can say my discus username is where you can find me. Uh, you can just reply to one of my comments and I don't know, something will happen. But yeah, I'm glad to be back. And hopefully this isn't five hours long like the other one, which lasted like, it felt like we were talking for two hours. But yeah, I'm glad to be back. No promises, my friend. No promises. And um, we have Darren. Have you heard Luke. of Skeptics and Seekers? For minimal. <laughs> this is kind of what we do, man. Um, so we've got uh, Darren Lute. Uh, he's back. He has appeared on uh, almost all of our podcasts at least once. Uh, I don't think you've been on uh, Russell's podcast. Have you been on Russell's podcast? Yeah. Okay, well then you've, you've made the rounds. Uh, Mr. Lute, how you doing? I'm doing fine. Um, I don't really have any specific religious-based uh, information to share, but I've got, uh, if anyone plays Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes on their phone, then I've got a website for that, which is thegamedistrict.com. You can go uh, find. Okay, and who does I like it? So, yeah, um, I don't play games. Um, That's right. No one's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so we've done a sci-fi fantasy show. We've done a superhero show. Uh, obviously, we're going to have to do a game show. Um, but not today. Um, so fantastic. Uh, Lute, by the way, what what podcast have you been on recently besides this one? you have any uh, particular shows that you want to uh, point people to? Uh, I think the most recent ones that I've been on as the as it still unbelievable or proscenium ones. Yes. I think we did. Yes, sure. uh, yeah, I think we did um, overviews of the Alpha Course and um, oh the other one. Uh, I don't remember the name of the other course. You and Matthew did it. Yeah, I don't remember it either. That's how much it affected me i guess you're not really selling the show darren um <laughs> well you know it's uh <laughs> i'm not a salesperson sorry okay. it's all right we'll we'll take care of you um so uh these are the players uh next week because i'm sure i will forget to mention it next week we have an outstanding i can't uh believe how much i'm looking forward to uh the panel next week uh it headlines uh marvin and matthew uh, both uh, British, well, in fact, I don't know that we would call Marvin British, would we? Um, I don't think he lives in uh, Britain uh, or is from Britain, but uh, we've got two European guests with distinct accents uh, who are actually very delightful people to talk to. Uh, tough as nails on the inside, though. Uh, good thinkers, looking forward to that, and uh, we will work behind the scenes to see if we can throw in a surprise or two uh, with them as well. So that said, uh, week two of the uh, epistem epistemology uh, discussion, uh, we will begin our opening statements. Uh, I am going to be brief. This podcast series of epistemology is more about me than you. Uh, listener, and that's not true most of the time. Um, 
this is a show that I wanted to do because epistemology is the most important subject to me. I think it is the biggest differentiator between um, Christians and non-Christians, religious people and non-religious people. I think it's the biggest difference between two sides in a war, uh, any war, especially a civil war. I think it's the biggest difference between people of um, uh, political differences. I think it is the wedge uh, that is driven between uh, us in America in particular. Uh, right now, uh, I do not believe that the problem is one of communication or empathy or um, uh, political uh, participation or uh, social responsibility. I think the real problem is at the epistemological level. Uh, I think that we in the world are in a crisis of epistemology. And what's worse, I don't have any answers. If you ask me uh, to give a, a strong position of epistemology, how do we tell uh, what things are true? I don't know. I've got some thoughts, obviously, but I don't really know. And that's the thing that might surprise you. And so I put this show together uh, not to preach uh, my opinion. Last week was probably the closest you're going to get to that. I put this show together to listen to what others have to say and see if I can't, at the end of the day, find something that I can hang on to. So the last show uh, is going to be Brian with a Y uh, and me, and we're going to come back and sit down and see what we can make uh, of all of this as a wrap-up. And so uh, I I want to see that. I wrote a couple of pieces. You can find them at skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. Uh, the last piece that I wrote focused on the idea of fake news. And the real idea behind that piece was in sources, reliable sources. Uh, one of the questions that I've been working through with uh, Andrew uh, in private is how do we go about uh, knowing things that we don't have firsthand access to? Uh, at some point, we've got to listen to reliable sources, and that's a very important thing. So then what are the reliable sources? How, what do we determine a reliable source is? This, this is something that I hope that someone uh, brings up today. There will be a lot of philosophy given today. I'm, I feel sure of it, uh, looking at the panel of guests that we have. But I hope that they find a way to connect it to real practical examples, because I don't learn how to live life through philosophical meandering. I learn it through examples. Um, and so I need to see examples. I hope that somebody in this show does what we try to do uh, in the um, discussion about uh, mor uh, moral epistemology. Uh, which is to show your work, connect the dots. So here we are, we have a subject, we don't know the answer, and how do we get to there from confidence that we have knowledge of the answer? I hope that someone shows the work in the process. Uh, I hope in this show someone talks about tools. What are the tools of epistemology? Because I've got a feeling that people of strongly different opinions, such as religious people and non-religious people, we're not using the same toolkit. We're using different tools to come up with different answers. I've got a feeling that that's the case. And so I hope that someone talks about the tools that they use and uh, how it helps them get to the answers. So there are a lot of things that I want to see um, as uh, a show host, but most importantly, just as a listener of this podcast. Uh, and so uh, with that laid out, uh, I want to turn the floor over to uh, Dale Glover, who uh, has graciously agreed to 
uh, donate some of his time to this because he's very busy, uh, I know, with schoolwork. Um, and uh, he he has a lot to say on this. And so we're going to allocate some time to Dale to give his opening comment. And when Dale is completed, uh, you all know the order of your comments. You can just jump right in, Dale. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah. So in the first place, uh, just say thank you very much for inviting me. Believe it or not, uh, yes, I'm really busy with school, but this I prefer this. This is fun for me, and this is where we actually engage with the the theories and put the theoretical knowledge into practice. So, uh, yeah, uh, I'm happy to be here. I'd rather do this than be reading, you know, philosophy of art or something <laughs> like that. But um, yeah. So so today's topic is epistemology and. I think it's really important that we have a sound theoretical basis first um, and then we apply that to practical examples because that's the only way we can be consistent in that sort of thing. So starting with the theoretical aspect, uh, okay, epistemology, what is that? It's the study of knowledge. Um, great. So it makes sense to ask what is knowledge? Um, and on this front, there are three different types of knowledge that epistemologists have uh, uh, laid out. Um, so the first is knowledge by acquaintance. You know, people have, have heard me use this in the show with David quite a lot. It, it's the not direct, immediate knowledge that you get. And I usually use this in reference to properly basic beliefs and that sort of thing. You just immediately know something because you recognize it, you're acquainted with it. Um, the other type of knowledge is know-how. Uh, so you know how to play baseball or something like that. Um, and then the third type of knowledge is the type that we mostly co concentrate on propositional type knowledge you know so that's knowledge that we derive from logical arguments and stuff like that um, now with the third type with propositional knowledge most uh, philosophers have traditionally defined that as a justified true belief so it has those th three elements uh, first of all you have to have a belief uh, in something that's a necessary requirement to have knowledge that belief also has to be true. It has to be a true belief. Um, and in, in terms of truth, uh, there are different, I'll, I'll get to that in a bit. And there's also has to be an element of epistemic or rational justification of some sort. Um, so, so yeah, basically in the 1960s, uh, a guy named Gettier came out and he provided counterexamples to kind of challenge this uh, tripartite definition of what knowledge is. And that sent shockwaves around the world, basically in response to those examples. Um, philosophers had, had to come up with different strategies, and there's about three strategies to tackle. So some philosophers will say, no, uh, Gettier's counterexamples aren't uh, counterexamples. Justified true belief is what knowledge is. Uh, it's just in his examples, uh, we were tricked into thinking those people were justified and they're not. There's the second uh, strategy, which is, Basically, you abandon, uh, sorry, you add on a fourth criterion. So knowledge equals justified true belief plus some fourth criterion. Um, and then there's the third alternative. This is the alternative that I take, um, where you replace justification with something else. And as everyone knows, I, I do that with warrant. So I, I take a reliableist criterion um, and add that to true belief to convert that to knowledge. So knowledge is a warranted true belief. What does it mean to be warranted then? So let's take the, the elements here. So 
Uh, I like uh, Elven planting as definition uh, of warrant. So it's it's a belief that is produced by reliable faculties. In a sense, it's it's produced by faculties that are functioning properly, so they're not subject to any kind of dysfunction or anything like that. Uh, functioning within a suitable cognitive environment, an environment that is suitable for those faculties, um, and they're. Um, whereby those faculties are successfully aimed at producing true beliefs. Um, if you've got that, then you're warranted. And um, in terms of the true belief, that's that's entailed in being warranted there. It's in the definition, right? Your, your faculties are aimed at producing true beliefs themselves. Um, I, I guess, do you want me to say a little bit about the nature of truth at all, David? Or wait for Yeah, me? sure. No, no, no. But, uh, go ahead and establish that now. All right, cool. So um, in terms of truth, there, there are dozens of theories as to what is truth. Most people, and I'm, I'm hoping most people on this panel, based on what I know, will accept the, the dominant view of the correspondence theory of truth. So truth is basically something that when a proposition corresponds to uh, reality, a fact of reality, that's that means you have a true belief. That's what truth is. So there's that truth bearer that's the proposition the belief and when it stands in a correspondence relation to a fact of reality or a truth maker then that's what makes the proposition true um so that's in a nutshell what truth is um and i, I don't think anybody here is going to really challenge the correspondence theory from what i know um, so, so yeah, with that said, that gives us sort of a general sense of what I think the elements of knowledge are. Um, in terms of uh, epistemic tools, David wanted us to say something about that. So I think that there are a variety of tools and methodologies that allow us to, to gain knowledge, to gain warranted true beliefs. Um, the first and primary one is logic starting with the first principles you know the logic of logical law of non-contradiction the logical law of identity or um, the logical law of excluded middle um, we also have rules for logical inferences we can tell if a deductive argument is valid versus invalid or uh, if an inductive argument is inductively strong or inductively weak by applying these logical laws so these Logical laws are primary. These are tools that we use to help us adjudicate whether we have a warranted true belief in an instance or not. Um, and then from that, there are derivative tools that we can use. So we can use scientific methodology. That's another great tool that helps us gain knowledge in, in certain respects. And those derive from the laws of logic. Uh, we have the historical method. This is another great tool. Um, obviously, this is a religious debate. so. You know, David makes a point that Christians have additional tools that perhaps atheists might not have or, or not have to the same degree as Christians. And I think he's right about that. Um, you know, so we, for example, we have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Um, so this, we, we have uh, our spirits uh, is the faculty of our soul that is designed to relate to God or the Holy Spirit and that sort of thing. So when the the Holy Spirit witnesses to our Holy Spirit about the truth of a certain proposition. Uh, this is an additional tool that provides, I think, provides us with warranted true beliefs. And that could cause differences between Christians and skeptics, because obviously skeptics aren't, don't have the same access to the Holy Spirit. Um, 
as you know sanctified Christians do and that sort of thing. Um, what else? Would I... um, yeah, I guess one other thing. So in terms of in epistemology, there's a debate between externalism and internalism. And you'll notice with the definition I gave of knowledge, warranted true belief. Warrant is an externalist thing, right? It, it's based on the reliability of my faculties. Uh, and that involves elements that are external to my, my own being aware of that and that sort of thing. So how could you ever know that you know or be cognizant of the fact that you have obtained warrant in a given case? And this is where I add in my own unique take going beyond planting uh, about the internalist aspect so that I think whenever the conditions for warrant are satisfied, it activates within us an internal irresistible inclination that we are cognizant of. Um, and this is how we know that we're warranted and that sort of thing. It, it, either this irresistible inclination stands outside of the epistemic chain, avoiding any charge of circularity, or you could say that the internal irresistible inclination itself warrants knowing that the faculties are justified and, and the faculties in turn justify this internal irresistible inclination. So it would be circular, but that's not necessarily viciously circular. There, there's a difference between a circular argument and a viciously circular one. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the last thing to mention is so there are different approaches to this epistemic chain regress problem, and uh, I, I take the foundationalist perspective, so I think certain beliefs are foundational to other beliefs that are derived from. So if you remember my example about the laws of logic, the, those first principles, the logical law of non-contradiction, would be a basic belief. Uh, you know, you can ask whether it's proper with respect to warrant or not, but that's a basic belief. And then we have other beliefs from science or from our senses that derive from that. Uh, they're derivative beliefs that derive on the truth of our fundamental basic beliefs. So yeah, I think in a nutshell, that's sort of a good coverage of the theory of epistemology. Okay, before we move on, this is not the QA part of this, but for for me and any audience that uh, was also tripped up on it, can you uh, explain the difference between a circular argument and a viciously circular argument? Um, so, so yeah, so I think like viciously circular, uh, hang on, so it's uh, like a, a viciously circular one would sort of be like in a causal sense, for example. So if, if A causes B and then B is said to cause A, well, it, it, you have to presuppose the existence of, of A uh, and or B before it's allegedly come about as an effect. So that would be something that's logically incoherent and impossible. And based on the incoherence, we would say, well, that's a viciously circular argument. Okay, thanks. Uh, Andrew? I think he fell asleep with my speech. Uh, well, I'm sure that you have the ability to raise him back to uh, life. Um, Andrew, you probably are doesn't mute. realize his mic. His yeah, mute. yeah. Andrew, you're on mute. Oh, actually, I didn't. It's uh, it's rare that I uh, it's rare that I uh, mute my mic, uh, as everyone knows. Uh, so, I I have a lot to follow there in in Dale's opening. Dale, I did listen to every word. I I think that in many ways we agree. Um, I, I would be careful 
about uh, about defending coherentism uh, uh, too vigorously, because I'm not sure uh, that uh, just having a network of coherent beliefs uh, gives us uh, justification to think that we're right. Uh, it may very well be that flat earthers have a system of coherent beliefs that, that lead them astray. But in principle, I think that good epistemology can lead us uh, to a, a coherent set of beliefs. And the question then is, how do we test that, uh, that network of beliefs uh, to decide whether our uh, set of views that we hope is coherent actually lines up with reality. I was interested in what you said about Gettier cases uh, because I'm fascinated by them. Uh, the idea, for instance, that clocks are uh, broken clocks are are right twice a day. I, th I think we sort of play with that analogy, and none of us actually think that a broken clock is right twice a day. And, and it is only a, an accident of convention about how the clock is made that we, that we might decide that it is right. But it's not right in any substantial sense. So I would be careful about coherentism and include in that defense that we need some, uh, we need some method. And by and large, I'm an externalist. And I, I do think we need process reliability to get to the heart of the things that we think uh, uh, that we think are true. And so one of the problems I have, for instance, with the Holy Spirit uh, claim is that I don't see a very reliable process there. And I, I hope we get into, uh, I hope we get into that uh, much further. I think we, I think we saw this written large on the public stage with QAnon. It may very well be that there were uh, some coherent beliefs among uh, QAnon conspirators, lizard people notwithstanding, um, but whether they were, whether they had a coherent set of views or not, it's pretty clear they were wrong. And so what we have to find when we are exercising our beliefs is a way to test them. And as far as I can tell, the best way we have of of testing our beliefs is something like process reliability, something like uh, externalism. I suspect that we're gonna spend a lot of time there today. Uh, I'm looking forward to that part of the conversation and I will, uh, I'll hand it off to uh, whoever's next. Mr. Attack. You are also muted. Oh, just there you go. Okay, you're good. I, I hear I'm you. I'm good. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, a lot. A lot's been said. Um, and for me, what matters the most isn't what ist someone subscribes to. What matters is can we all agree on what truth is? As in, if there's such a thing as truth, then it objectively exists out there. That the only way you can convince someone of something is if you both agree that there exists an absolute truth out there, there exists an objective truth where we can both go and check and see if we're both right. Um, if everyone has their own definition of truth and their own standards, then the process of convincing someone 
that they are right about a subject or they're wrong on a subject becomes uh, meaningless ultimately. So as long as there's a consensus of there being an absolute truth that there is something out there that exists outside of you that you may not know about, then we can we can begin the dialogue and the dialogue can continue uh, to a place where it actually makes sense because um, we can get lost in the details with um, I subscribe to this perspective versus I subscribe to that perspective. Um, but ultimately for me, the issue is, can we all uh, uh, look at something that is absolute and objective for everyone for all time uh, without having to sort of make up our own definitions of truth or say, my perspective is this and you, your perspective might be that and we're both right. I don't believe that's an adequate way of um, arriving at the truth. Um, so that's, uh, that's how I see it. And uh, yeah, that's my opening statement. Mr. Lute. Yeah, um, I have some opinions. No, no surprise there. Um, I'm actually okay with the um, with thinking that truth is the is what corresponds to reality. Um, I'm actually fine using reality as my objective um, source of truth. The biggest problem for me is actually what tools do we use to reliably and accurately figure what that is? Um, Dale did a good job of um, sort of outlining some of the different theory. Um, but in, but the biggest problem I see with a lot of that theory, especially with um, knowledge being defined as justified true belief or warranted true belief, is that when you talk to people, their tools for um, getting to or for um, identifying something as justified or warranted don't always match. So what might, uh, might be justified for one person might not be justified for another person. So I'm not entirely sure if justified or warranted or even a good um, criteria for um, defining knowledge just because it's such a subjective criteria. Uh, and if something's true uh, and it has to be true for knowledge, then if then it seems to me that that's really all you need. Um, I found a definition of knowledge uh, a few weeks ago that I really like, and it's basically knowledge is that which allows you to accurately and uh, reliably predict the future. So if um, you're building a computer um, and you have knowledge of how a computer is built, then the predictive quality of that is that you should be able to um, build a computer that actually works. And if you can't do it, then obviously you didn't have knowledge about how a computer was built. Um, and I think I like that because it gives us a way to verify that what we are claiming we have knowledge about, we do in fact have knowledge about. Um, and when you have the definition of justified true belief, you don't have that mechanism inbuilt into the definition. 
So maybe that's just me being lazy on my part because you get to the end point of it being knowing it's reliable without having to actually take that next step. Um, so yeah, my, my biggest thing is the tools used to figure out what is justified and what's not. So that'll be what I'll probably pipe in on mostly on during the show. All right, guys. Well, thank you uh, for your opening statements there. It was awesome. David, you got anything to add? I know you wanted to do a Q&A time, so I'll let you kind of just introduce that and how you want to run that gauntlet. Okay, sure. I uh, just wanted to uh, follow up on, on a couple of things. Uh, so I want to start with Dale. Um, there was a conversation on the board, Dale, that uh, you were not involved with, so I'm not bringing up any uh, conversation on the board that that you were in yet. Um, this one was actually Brian with an I. And uh, some of my favorite conversations are when uh, I can get Brian riled enough uh, to get in a good disagreement <laughs> because you, you're gonna have to work a little bit <laughs> when, uh, when that happens. So I, I always appreciate those conversations. And the one that I am referring to, uh, I'm just going to modify the examples uh, just a little bit. Um, Tyler, Tyler B, provocateur, um, Tyler B, uh, suggested that um, there had been no demonstrations of the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, Brian jumped in and said, well, actually, uh, many people have claimed that there have been demonstrations of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so I changed the um, example there, as I will do here, to magic. And the example was, uh, if I perform magic in front of a group of people and they all think that magic was performed, uh, have there been any demonstrations of magic? Now, the caveat is, it's a trick. I tricked them into thinking it was magic. So this would be one of those Gettier um, type examples. Uh, so there was actually no magic, but they observed what they thought was magic. Does that count as a demonstration of magic? What, what would qualify as a demonstration? So, yeah, so I would say no, it's not a demonstration, right? When, when you say the word demonstration, we're talking about proving positively that magic took place in this thing. And, and obviously your example is that there, there, is, no, there is no such. Um, so it would be the same, same deal with the Holy Spirit. Um, if, if you're saying that there are cases that we know are false or, or that sort of thing, but some trickster is able to trick a group people into saying see that was that was the holy spirit when he's just doing like a magic trick uh then yeah that that wouldn't count as a, a demonstration it would not be a warranted true belief in that hypothetical scenario that you give right but my in my scenario it relies on the idea that we know that my magic was a trick i did not uh discredit all magic that has ever been seen by people so maybe there is real magic in the same way that if you can if you can show that someone is behaving fraudulently and claiming it's the holy spirit that wouldn't mean that the holy spirit does not work in those ways 
uh, in that it has not been demonstrated before, but you don't have any warrant to say that it has been demonstrated until you can prove that it has been demonstrated. Uh, and so you couldn't say that it has never been demonstrated, but you also couldn't say that it has been demonstrated. That's my understanding of how this would logically work. Um, how do you see that? Um, yeah, I, I fully agree. In insofar as I'm understanding you, I fully agree. Right? This, this is a philosophical, basic philosophical principle uh, of rational belief or reasonable belief, where there are three mutually exclusive options. You either believe a proposition, you disbelieve a proposition, and again, there are degrees within that, uh, or you suspend judgment. And the scenario that you're laying out is where, hey, we we don't have any warranted reason to think that it was the Holy Spirit. Likewise, we don't have any reason to think that it wasn't the Holy Spirit. So in that case, the, the principle of, philosophical principle of indifference says what you do is you suspend judgment uh, unless and until you get reason to lean one direction or the other. So yeah, okay. I, and I had one other question for uh, Mac Attack. Mac. Hey, uh, hey hold on, hold on. Okay. Let, let's, why, we, why we got Dale going on, let me ask Dale a question. Okay, well. jump, go ahead. Um, Dale, uh, this is an old one, and you've probably heard it before, but it's good for the audience as well. Um, is the hierarchy of properly basic beliefs itself a properly basic belief? Uh, it, it definitely could be and, and that sort of thing. I, I think it is, right? Like that's one of the reason, one of the reasons or arguments in favor of foundationalism is the phenomenological type argument that properly, it's a properly basic belief. This is how it, our beliefs immediately come to us, right? They are ordered in this hierarchy of sequences where, you know, logic, things derive, certain beliefs derive from other beliefs. So yeah, I would definitely say it is properly, it is and can be properly basic belief. Um, you know, maybe some guy doesn't have that for some weird reason, but I think most of us do. Okay, go ahead, David. Okay, uh, I just wanted to throw one to uh, uh, Mac Attack here. Uh, by the way, Mac, I uh, fully am in line with your statement about objective truth. So whereas we would not agree on objective morality, uh, okay. I absolutely agree with objective truth. And uh, I would also say that I'm uh, the correspondence theory, uh, that uh, the correspondence principle, I, I think that's what that's called. Absol absolutely um, in, in line with what I think. Uh, but I just wanted to ask, uh, to probe uh, that a little bit. Are there any areas that you can think of where there might be different truths for different people? Uh, so where where the idea of objective truth might not stand up quite so well? Yeah, of course. Uh, for instance, if someone says, my wife is the most beautiful woman in the world, that that's true for them, but it might not necessarily be true for everyone else. So there are categories like that where someone can have uh, specific uh, preferences for things in the material world. Um, what I what I meant by objective truth is that there are issues such as reality, where it can't just be like my uh, view on this subject is true for me. Therefore, it is true for everyone else. There's a sense in which it has to be true for everyone else. That's 
what makes it objective. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, it does. I'll just follow up by saying the example that you gave there uh, is one that I would uh, not classify as a truth claim. And so I don't I think that we make category errors uh, sometimes and we call everything a truth claim and everything is not a truth claim. Some things are just opinions. And I don't think there is any truth in opinions. I mean, the only truth would be that you honestly have that opinion. But the truth isn't whether that opinion is right or not. But you, know, you say that, I don't know if you'll get in trouble if you have a wife and say that it's my opinion that you're, you're beautiful. It's not really true. Um, I don't um, think I would with the, with the wife that I have. Uh, right. I, think she, I think she'd be okay with that. She'd just be glad to hear me say, I think you're beautiful. And that's my opinion. <laughs> that's uh, so she, yeah. But, but yeah, you know, you're but right. do, you, do you see what I mean, though? That's not a that's not something that's measurable. Uh, and so it's not something that's properly in the category of truth or falsehood. I, I, I disagree there because I think that beauty definitely is measurable. Like I know we say beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, but there's there are things that are beautiful. Like, would you agree that a sunset or a sunrise is beautiful? Like, is there anyone on the planet who would think otherwise? Yes, I I think it's beautiful to me, but I don't think it's absolutely beautiful. And so this, um, look, I don't want to get too mired down here, but I okay. can tell you now, Mac, I would love to talk to you about these these types of things because okay. um, this is uh, so. Let's put a pin in it, and uh, we might we might spend some time on the board, or we might do a. A follow-up show <laughs> where we can talk right. about some of these. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Russell, okay. uh, very, very quickly, but I, uh, I Dale's, Dale, oh, go ahead, man. I hear you. Okay, cool. So, so just kind of going off what you guys are saying, I, I do think that, believe it or not, I, I agree with both uh, Mac Attack and David, but I think that there are certain statements where it does make sense, or, or certain uh, sentences or that sort of thing, where it does make sense to say that there is no truth value to them. So, for example there are uh, imperative sentences, uh, commands, go get me my pizza. Uh, it doesn't make sense. That sentence isn't true or false. It's a command or, or things like a question. So like, yeah, you know, you can take, I take a realist perspective like Mac Attack on most sentences, declarative sentences. You know, they declare something is either true or false. Uh, but on things like commands or questions, a nihilist perspective is more where there is no truth value to those types of sentences makes more sense. So yeah, there, it is a mixed picture depending on what type of sentence you're looking at. Uh, I don't know if that helps or just, yeah. Yeah, it helps. Thanks. All right. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's, that was good. You know, I had a question for Andrew, but I'm not sure. I think Darren kind of covered it in his opening speech but so uh, I, I had one for Darren but I don't have one for Andrew and so right. if you if you have one for Andrew wouldn't want to leave him out he's he, he I do I do um you know Descartes Descartes said acquiring knowledge is by methodologies the best way to do it is by uh, methodology I'll wait for that mic so you could you could you mute real quick uh, so all right, I muted it, Brian. It was Brian. Uh, I muted, oh, so hey, you, you have the power to mute people, David. Oh <laughs> no, well, I'm going to leave that power to you. Uh, is that Brian with a Y? 
Okay. Hey, uh, Brian. Uh, welcome. Uh, I just so you guys know, I put in uh, in the email that anyone can drop in uh, and listen live, and Brian has a good reason to do that because we'll be talking about all these shows. So uh, stick stick in there, Brian. If you want to uh, speak through the chat, uh, anyone who might be listening, feel free to do that. I cannot read the chat and follow it from Skype because it's really small print and I'm blind. Uh, but the others can, <laughs> so uh, feel free to um, to do some back channeling with the Skype chat. Go ahead, uh, Russell. Sorry about that. So yeah, the uh, the whole idea of process of reliability and like I said, Descartes thought there could be a methodology. Andrew, is that kind of like what you're looking for uh, when it comes to these claims of the inertness of the Holy Spirit? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't have any idea um, <laughs> what the Holy Spirit is. And so I don't have any idea uh, what well, process you might use. Yeah. To, let, let me just put a bow on that. Yeah. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is. Mm -hmm. I don't have any idea what process you would use uh, that you could convince me was reliable. Yeah. So let's let's give a general hypothesis, though. I mean, you know, the general hypothesis of the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, just base it off of something kind of general like that. OK. So um, I, I still have the same problem. You tell me there's a Holy Spirit. Yes, I I know what the claim is that there's, a, uh, you know, some supernatural being and somehow that supernatural being can reach inside the gears of the universe and wind them just so. Um, I have not seen that to be the case. As far as I can tell, it's not. And the problem that I think we have is that that we do know these things uh, can be faked. I don't know that they haven't all been faked. But when we when we talk about process reliability, what we're actually trying to find is a process that can separate uh, things that are in a, in a set into two distinct groups. So if you ask me about the Holy Spirit, I say, okay, fine. Then what process do you offer me that allows me to tell the difference between those things that are bona fide from the Holy Spirit and those things that aren't? And, and so, yes, I would expect a reliable process there. If there is this, this, Entity. I don't want to say thing because that'll sound so um, that'll sound so trite. If there's this entity, the Holy Spirit, and this entity works in specific given ways, I would expect to be able to take a large group of claims about that that being and how it works, and reliably separate them into two categories: those so, things the being did, those things the being didn't do, regardless yeah. of attribution. Okay, so you would like a strong method or, or kind of like Descartes, you would like a, a, a methodology, a strong process of reliability that would, um, uh, you know, prove that uh, in, in the way well, that your five senses, uh, the way your five senses would be able to take it. And I mean, it was just general. I was just asking to to, to no. see kind of where your criteria would be on it. Sure. I want to I want to just ask you about what you mean by strong reliability, because I, I realize that some things are more reliable than others. Um, but I would certainly expect 
that, uh, you know, I, I think in my life, for instance, uh, if people wanted to find the things that I did and the things that I didn't do, there's, there's a, uh, uh, you know, there's a way to do that that gives a strong degree of reliability. So I'm not sure why we would argue that in the case of something like the Holy Spirit, we should expect a weaker standard. Okay, thank you. I mean, that's really all I had for, for the questions. So uh, sure, okay. I know David's going to follow up with his last one. Yeah, I've got I've got one for Darren. Um, Darren, you uh, spoke my language uh, when you talked about tools. Uh, so I wanted to just really drive specifically uh, into what I think is the heart of your point, certainly the heart of one of my points. Um, we all have the tools of our five senses plus our mind, uh, and I think that we would all agree on that. So what tools uh, do you think are controversial here uh, that are going to need the discussion? It's, it's not sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, mind. So what tools did you have in mind? Well, I would guess any tool that claims to have a supernatural component. So the census de vitatatis, um, any sort of I know just because I know type of um, tools. Oh, and before I forget, the um, unit of measurement for beauty is actually a Helen. So. OK. Um, Helen, Helen of Troy or Helen down the street at the uh, mini mall? Uh, Helen of Troy, okay. a face uh, that launched wait. a thousand ships. So a mini Helen would just be a face that would launch one ship. Ah, okay. Is that a objective standard? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to rule that we uh, not answer that. Uh, <laughs> right. I'm going to I'm going to actually throw in one more question for the panel, uh, and this uh, can launch the uh, beginning of the uh, discussion phase, if that's okay. Um, damn it. I know that, uh, I know that Brian, I think sent a message. Someone sent a message over the Skype and I, it was just, I can't, I'm trying to see it and I couldn't see it and now it's gone. And I, what did it say? Anyway, never mind. I, these, I won't interrupt the show again over that, <laughs> but I will. It now, was a funny, it said it was, Darren's hard stop is going to come at the business end of a Dale wielded two by four. Ah, you know, it's not as funny after you after you read it. And then yeah. I need someone to set up another mic and so that they can read these things out in my ear when they come in. I don't know how we're going to work that. Here's my uh, question that I want to uh, launch the uh, discussion on. And so everybody, you can take a minute to think about it. Um, but and I don't care who starts and uh, you can begin chatting with each other. Uh, I want to pick up uh, off of uh, Darren's answer about tools. Uh, it seems that there is a set of tools uh, that we use to determine the truth or falsity of mundane things. Uh, so a mundane thing would be uh, how do we how do we chart a course from here to the moon? Uh, it's it's a natural thing, um, a natural question, and then we apply natural tools. I'm guessing that none of the Christians on the panel would say we need any other tools, or other tools are in use for that. But I, that may not be the case. But we've we've got the tools to do that, and then there are the tools for the 
let's call them uh, supernatural things or spiritual things. Uh, and then that's where we might employ the Holy Spirit or the internal witness or um, or some something else that you know might might require a tool that you know sending a ship to the moon would not. Uh, so do you see two different realms of epistemology where you use one set of tools for one thing and a different set of tools for another thing? Or is it all just one set of tools? Can you get to the same place with, with one set of tools? How, how does that work? Uh, and so if you don't understand the question, begin to discuss it among yourselves. I'm sure that you will pick it out. Are you essentially asking the question from last week, the first Corinthians two, fourteen to seventeen or thereabouts question? I am uh putting it out there and I am muting my mic. That wasn't a yes or no to the question I asked. <laughs> all right, so so we're supposed to respond to that or like we're questioning each other. Um all right, well I guess my my take so as David knows, when it comes to things like miracles and that sort of thing, in the first place, from a Christian perspective, I, I could just arbitrarily say everything that happens is supernatural. Even the natural events are in some way caused by God, right? He's sustaining the universe. He's what we call the laws of nature are really just causal dispositions of, quote-unquote, physical objects uh, of or natural objects, quote-unquote, um, so, so that's all they are, and, and under that understanding with the laws of nature, there, there is no metaphysical necessity to them. God is perfectly able to do certain things or cause certain things on a more frequent level that uh, compared to other things that are rarer and might serve as a sign. Um, now, one thing that you guys will be aware of is um, I, I don't like this supernatural versus natural divide. I think it causes... Uh, Christians and skeptics to talk past each other and I've sort of developed my own notion of how we, we can go about identifying miracles as intelligent design uh, or at least a certain class of miracles as being intelligently designed events designed by God uh, and I use William Dembski's specified complexity to do this where you know so the event in question is complex uh, it's improbable or of a sufficiently small probability to occur, um, given what we know of, of the causal dispositions of physical objects uh, and how they normally behave and that sort of thing. Plus, there's a specification. This is where the religious context element comes in and, and that sort of thing. And I've I've given my criteria specific about G-Belief authenticating events. This, this show's not about that. But in a nutshell, yeah, I, I think that specified complexity is a tool it applies in science on a quote-unquote mundane level and that's something that both skeptic and christian alike can interact on is specified complexity a, a set of justified criteria if it is uh does how does it apply in one field versus another can can we use it to identify non-mundane events as david likes to call it so yeah that might be a tool i think could be useful yeah, I've never found specified complexity to be a useful tool just because when you are, um, because it relies on probabilities. So, I mean, Dale, you even mentioned it in your, when you were describing it, is that you're recognizing when physical events were, had real low probability. 
the problem is, is when you start um, comparing probabilities, you actually have to have a probability for the supernatural. Otherwise, you can't compare them. So if you don't have any probability for a supernatural event happening, then there's no way to say which is more likely to happen because you don't actually have those numbers to be able to say whether something's more likely or not. Yeah, it's um, okay. So that's, I, I think I, I hear what you're saying. Um, what, what I would just say, though, is that's it's when it comes to the complexity, we don't necessarily need a probability of the supernatural. That, that's beside the point. What we need is the probability of that event occurring. Um, and we would have to calculate what, what Dempsey calls the saturated probability. So, you know, the, the basic probability. Uh, after after uh, taking into account any specificational resources as well as replicational resources, we get that probability, whatever it is. Let, let's say it's 40, you know, one third or something like that. Then you have to assess, well, is that probability small enough? And that's where the, the context matters. Uh, you have to establish what is the probability bound of for, for that specific type of event in order to say if it's below that bound, then it's small. If it's above that bound, then it's not a small probability and you can ascribe it to chance. Now, that Again, that we can apply that to any field uh, and assess events in any field. And, and scientists do do that. Well, except that bound that you're creating is completely arbitrary because you haven't um, you haven't uh, produced any reason why we should think that a supernatural event happens if the um, if the physical probability is reaches that that lower bound. So again, you're running into the same problem because the probability of the supernatural is vitally um, important because if you're comparing probabilities, you have to have probabilities for both sides and you can make up a lower bound if you want, but unless you can verify that that lower bound is an accurate depiction of how reality works, then it's largely meaningless to say that the physical probability of this happening is under this lower bound because you have no real idea of what it, what the supernatural is even capable of or what the probabilities are or if it even exists in order to do this thing that you're doing so there's a i think there's another problem um in order to in in order to claim that this thing that happened was was not probable and that it became you know because it wasn't probable it somehow became uh supernatural um you you've got to do more than just that in in a probability space. So, uh, if you if you roll uh, if you flip a coin uh, a billion times, you'll get long strings of heads and tails uh, in in that sequence, and it will it will appear to be quite improbable that you got a hundred heads in a row or whatever it is. But these sorts of things do happen, and and they don't appear to be miraculous in any way. And so the problem that you have is attempting to, to say that you've somehow broken this, this law of probability rather than just running into uh, a sequence that appears to be unusual. Uh, if I chime in a little bit, I 
have a question in terms of how the atheists in this panel would define something as supernatural because how I see it is if something happened that you couldn't explain with natural means, you would just say, well, I don't know how that happens, but we live in a materialistic universe. So maybe 50 years down the line, someone will figure out how, how or why this thing happened. So my question perhaps is like, what counts as a supernatural event or how would an atheist define a supernatural event? I'm largely I don't really think that's our job. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to have to well, agree with Andrew on that. I'm well, largely. I don't really think that's our job. That's your job. If I, if I could clarify, okay, what I mean by it's because you're using it, you're using the word supernatural. But if you're saying, okay, it's not well, my when, job, but fine. we're not, we're not. Sorry, I, I don't, okay, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but we're not no the ones using the word. Super, yeah, I, I really am not trying to interrupt. I just want to get us into the right frame. Gotcha. All right. So, so we're not using the word supernatural. And when we do, uh, it is maybe not always, I don't want to overstate the case, but it's almost always in response to it having been used first. Okay, I, I get that. But my question, okay. does, that, does that word have a meaning? As far as I can tell, it doesn't. Um, just because um, whenever I try to get a theist to tell me exactly what the supernatural is, I never get a response. It's always like, oh, well, it's not physical. Okay, but that doesn't tell me what it is. It's sort of like saying um, a table is not green. Okay, so I get that it's not a green color, but what is it? You know. So, as far as I as far as I can tell, I've never have I've never had anyone actually explain to me what the supernatural is supposed to be. Well, I could give a very brief description. I'd say that it's something that defies the laws the laws of the universe, the physical laws, the laws of logic, um, and I don't know if that. Uh, definition uh, satisfies you, but uh, in terms I've got a question for you about it. Um, okay, so so I think this is Darren. I'm sorry if you if you want to take this, you can. No, um, go ahead. So so my question would be, in what way did you determine that all of the possible natural explanations were uh, were somehow eliminated, and then even if you could do that, which seems uh, like a big ask. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it would be, it would be, uh, you know, that would take a lot of work. Um, so once you've eliminated every natural explanation that you can think of, how did you, how did you arrive at the certainty that you had in fact eliminated all natural possibilities plus just being wrong about what you saw and then get to a mechanism that that not only is somehow this idea of supernatural, but demonstrates a process of supernatural intervention. So I'm, I'm not arguing motive or opportunity about the supernatural. I'm actually questioning the method. And if the supernatural event itself is mysterious, that seems to be a real problem in terms of, of, of some methodological explanation. Okay. My my issue then it becomes then that that word becomes meaningless, and so even even if um so, I was listening to you and uh, Darren talk, and I was like, mm. you probably don't believe the same thing about what supernatural means, and so you guys were going back and forth about probabilities, and I was thinking, okay, there isn't a set definition for what supernatural means because you don't believe there's such such a thing exists, and he does, so um. it was going nowhere. Okay, that's fair. I, I think I would say, though, that 
my resistance to the supernatural is not predicated on a lack of belief. It is, it is, and I'll say it again, a request of demonstration of supernatural methodology. Okay. So it, it is, look, in, in, the, in the sort of general sense, it is fair for you to say, Andrew, you don't appear to believe in the supernatural. You could, you could even put it more strongly. You could say, Andrew, you don't believe in the supernatural. But that is a, that's a sort of casual, it's a sort of casual statement that doesn't actually encompass my feeling on the supernatural or my beliefs in regard to the supernatural, which is uh, something like Stephen Hawking's answer to David Letterman. There may very well be, uh, there may very well be a God, but scientific record is complete without one. And so it is, it is the case that in the casual sense, I don't believe in the supernatural, but it's not an unwillingness to believe if the methodology can be demonstrated, if that makes sense. Let me, let me, let me step in real quick and see if I can move us past some of this supernatural uh, business, because uh, I feel like I, I'm responsible for it since my question uh, did involve it and how we apply different tools for different things. Uh, so yes, I kind of, yeah, I kind of agree with everybody though, a little bit. I understand Dell's uh, position uh, where he says you don't actually need a different set of tools for things. Uh, I can appreciate that. Um, and I understand McAttack's position that the word supernatural is meaningless. But I think uh, I think we, we should probably have some nuance here. So I, I kind of agree that the word supernatural is meaningless. But that's because I'm a materialist. But I think that even for Christians, it should probably be meaningless. Because if by supernatural, what we mean is an act of God, that's still natural. Uh, so it's just natural based on your opinion of what the universe is. So if you think the universe is an open fish tank, and God is outside of the fish tank, but he has the ability to reach into the fish tank and stir the water and move the gravel and put food in and take fish out and things like that. That's a perfectly natural picture of the universe. Uh, so I don't see any of the uh, gods acting in the universe as a supernatural thing because it has mechanisms, and maybe mechanisms we don't understand. So if the Christian is saying, well, no, this is an event that happened sans mechanism, then I think that's a problem. It, it, I think the only thing the Christian can say is this happened sans mechanism that I can understand. But it's still a mechanism. And what the, what the skeptic is asking for is, well, how do you, you're claiming that this thing that has no mechanism comes from this place. And I think that uh, without even resorting to words like supernatural, we could just say, well, how do we determine the truth of this thing coming from this source if we can't use uh, trace some kind of mechanism to it. So um, supernatural and supernatural kind of becomes a stand-in for things with understood mechanisms versus things sans mechanism. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's uh, that's sort of been my point, um, is that we, we can trace it back with the specified complexity angle uh, if it if it's a valid set of criteria and it applies, then yeah, we can trace it back. This is divine design, and this event happened for a designed purpose. So I, I think 
yeah, my, my criteria are an attempt to do just that. Right. So I did have a question about your criteria, and I'll mute my mic again, uh, because, the, again, I'm trying to understand uh, all of the, the various sides here. So, uh, Dale, you you believe that this um, specified complexity, you're using probabilities, uh, type of a type of Bayesian model when you talk about probabilities, I think. Um, just just basing this on past conversations that we've had, past things that you've said. Um, but you use Bayesian model the way I do, which is just heuristically. You're not talking about a very specific kind of formula, because most people who look around at an event and say, well, eh, that looks pretty unlikely. I'd put that at 20 percent. Um, they're not doing any real calculation. They're just using that number to say how they feel. It's it's a, an emotional number more than anything else. Uh, but if you're going to if you're going to use any type of Bayesian calculation as a way of determining whether a thing uh, comes from a god or not, then we need to be more specific. So, what is the specific level of low probability that a thing would reach before you would say, "Well, that can't be um, a a known mechanism"? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's an excellent question. So just to correct you, so I'm not, I don't use Bayes' theorem here in this specific context, but you're right, I, I do use it elsewhere, like is Christianity true or something like that? Um, and sort of backing up Darren's point from earlier, yeah, I use subjective probabilities. I'm not a statistician. I have no, I don't have the slightest clue as to how to calculate what is the lowest probability value or what is the probability of, of this event in a, frequentist sense of the term. These events are simply uh, inscrutable, um, as most scholars would say. But in decision theory, we are able to ascribe subjective probabilities um, or different type. It doesn't have to be a frequentist type of probability. And given that, so this is where my uh, technique comes from. My, my probability bound when I'm evaluating miracles is less than 50%. If you're less than 50%, I say that's a small probability. Uh, a lot of you guys are probably saying, what? Uh, how did you get that? That's so arbitrary and that sort of thing. But uh, sorry, so it would be the standard is when if a reasonable person, the legal definition, an average person, average intelligence, due diligence, wisdom, you know, all that good stuff, the average person would assign uh, it the event less than 50% probability of occurring. And the reason I can convert that, that only gets you rational justification. Remember, justified true belief. You're not warranted based on that. Uh, the way I convert that to warrant is through my 11 premise argument of, well, God exists. God would not allow a reasonable person to be unduly confused. Um, so as long as I can say that I'm a reasonable person and I'm rationally justified in saying that this event is complex uh, or improbable to occur in that definition, plus the specified the specification aspect then yeah I, I can i can be warranted in saying this event was designed by god um and, and say that was a miracle for designed for whatever purpose okay so i know that everyone's everyone's chomping at the teeth andrew you you'll get there first because you uh raised your hand first um but we raise our hand yeah by speaking <laughs> and so, it's a it's a um, speak it into existence kind of thing apparently. Yeah, um, <laughs> it, it's a it's a name and claim it type thing. 
Um, so before you turn it to other, I do have if it, after this, I do have a question for Andrew based on the mechanism and supernatural thing. But I'll wait. That's I'm, that's fine. I'm gonna I'm gonna re uh, restore conversation to its natural order again. But I did I did have one other thing that kind of I need you to clarify this for me in order to to continue to follow your reasoning, Dale, uh, because you're talking about things like high probability, uh, low probability. So. If, if it's high probability that it's natural, uh, I mean, here I am using natural and unnatural again, high probability that's a highly um, uh, understood mechanism without uh, need for God intervention, then, you know, that's one thing. But if it's, if it's really low, then you would put God there. But you would agree, wouldn't you, that things that are totally natural uh, that don't require the direct intervention of a God do happen at low probability levels if there are some events that just happen uh that are low probability so just because it's an extreme one in a zillion chances of it being you know of it happening there have been a zillion events and so uh that may be the one time that could be natural and on the other side you would agree that things that happen frequently could still be god uh yeah. God doesn't. God doesn't nearly have to work in the margins, and so I'm not sure how it helps us to work with low percentage versus high percentage. If it's God, God can work in low percentages or high percentages. If it's nature, nature can work in low percentages or high percentages. So I don't see how it. I don't see how that helps us differentiate uh, the the origin of the thing. Yeah, so, so in the first place, yeah, you're right. Everything that exists is caused by God. All, all of the causal dispositions of the quote-unquote natural things are ultimately caused by God, right? He created those things with those causal dispositions. But with, this, with the specified complexity thing, this, this allows us to identify uh, specific instances of design. It may not be sufficient to identify every instance of, de of design, right? You know, We've kind of debated this about, well, isn't every event that happens providentially designed by God? Yes. Uh, but specified complexity doesn't apply to every single thing. So, yeah, I think we have to admit that. But nevertheless, it is useful for identifying certain types of design events. Okay, uh, I'm going to turn it back over to the floor. I think Andrew had the mic. Yes, but I don't remember what the question was. So, Dale, you had a, a question for me about mechanism. Maybe that will... Mind if I step in real quick? Please. Um, Dale, you said that um, your criteria for determining your probability was that uh, was whether you knew of a um, natural event for it and what you felt was the probability of that happening. So, given that your criteria is based off of your opinion um, that is informed by your knowledge of the subject. Why should anyone take that as evidence that the claim that you're trying to make is actually true? Yeah, so I think so. So in the first place, it's not exactly what you said. There's that you have to be a reasonable person. I think God operates on the levels of reasonable people he you know he's there to for the average person and reveal it he's not there just for scholars and and that sort of thing so that's why i have that semi-objective 
standard, that legal standard. Um, but why but, should we care about the average person and not like the PhD that knows things in the that has the specialized knowledge in the area of study? Yeah, so so you're right, right? Because at most, all I can say is that I'm rationally justified. Maybe I have good reasons as a reasonable person to think that this event is designed. But that isn't warrant in the in the hardcore. I can't claim to have knowledge in isolation. And, and this is where my 11 premise argument kicks in. You, you know, you, you're familiar with God. As a maximal great being, I can prove God exists as a maximal great being and that God has certain outcomes, you know, salvation, that sort of thing. He would not... Um, allow for undue confusion, confusion that would cause a reasonable person um, to be unjustifiably confused and miss out on achieving their ultimate purpose. So it's God's responsibility that allows me to convert mere rational justification on this specified complexity thing to warrant. Does that, does that make sense? Or? It makes sense, but I'm still questioning how, I'm still questioning your claim to have be justified. Um, in that because if you don't have um, knowledge on the subject and you're claiming that it um, that it, the probabilities are based off of your knowledge then I don't see how that equals being justified in believing it well I, I have uh, sufficient knowledge to be rational to make rational justification Justification to be rationally justified. Sorry. Yes, yeah, and um, I don't agree with that claim. So here, let me share. This. I don't know if I want to share the screen actually, but uh, okay. Am I sharing the screen now? Maybe. Is it all black? Oh, there we go. I, I've opened up an internet thing. Can you mm -hmm. guys see that? Okay. Yeah. All right. So let me go to my website. I'll just show like my. If this thing doesn't work, I was going to go to my, uh, I'll go to my website and I'll show the table that I use, my, my specific criteria, and maybe like you could let me know, like which ones do you find that a reasonable person wouldn't be justified based on? Uh, again, it's taking forever, sorry guys. David's probably going to have to edit this out or. Brother, I wouldn't edit it out if you accidentally put Pornhub up there. <laughs> no, is that objectively true? I'm just no, curious. Can we all agree? Would, I would not edit it out. I would but I mean, can we all agree that it shouldn't be edited out? That's that's the actual. <laughs> Wait, what, what's the what was the question again? I'm sorry. Uh, it's it's going to derail us. It was just joking. It was it was just just lighthearted banter. No, I'm asking what what was the question that uh, Darren asked that? Oh, oh well, I'm uh, wondering I... at I'm asking Dale to. And this may sound weird, but to justify his criteria for justification. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so, so yeah, so so if you see, so it's in the context of my eleven premise argument. Obviously, it, it these so you're challenging that a reasonable person couldn't be justified, rationally justified. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying how does specifically picking someone without knowledge on the subject and asking them how does their lack of knowledge then on the subject justify them in believing it? 
Well, because they would have knowledge that God wouldn't allow them to be unduly confused in that way. So as long well, as how do they have that knowledge? On the basis of the the premises in my argument and my provide right but we're talking about the real world here we're not talking about the premises of an argument so I, I guess what i'm asking is i mean yes in the construct of your premises you've defined that as being um justified but what i'm asking is why should we and i don't want to sound rude here um so i'm looking for the right words <laughs> um why should we take your premises as being an accurate reflection of reality. Yeah. So 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 yeah, that's not and that wasn't rude at all. That was a, a great question. Well you didn't so, you didn't hear what first went through my head. So Okay, good. Well thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. But, good practicing second responses today. That's a good thing. Good. <laughs> yeah, I know so far it's been great. Yeah, I, I like it. So this is where you have to analyze when you evaluate this is a deductive argument. Right? So there are two elements to assessing those. So the first, in the first place, you have to be logically valid, meaning does the conclusion uh, follow necessarily from the truth if we assume the premises are true? Right, and that's right. my question, though, is how do we determine that the premises are actually true? Right, so that's the second part. Is it logically sound? Uh, obviously, you're not, I'm, you know, I'm writing up my book, uh, providing the warrant for each of these premises. I don't have that in front of me, as you know, I've spent like 12 hours just doing the first premise of the cosmological argument. Uh, so I haven't written out everything yet. But yeah, that's where you would need to provide warrant for premise one, God exists. Okay, this is where I would get into cosmological argument, ontological argument, as well as negative evidences against the existence of God, like the hiddenness of God. Or Right, uh, but, that, but you're skipping a big step there. Um, I'm asking at the very, very, very first step, how does someone who doesn't actually know the information um, that you're asking them to make a decision on, how are they justified in making a decision on their ignorance? Darren, if I might, let me just uh, offer a real-world example because I work best with examples. I think I understand what you're asking. You can let me know if I'm wrong. Uh, an Aborigines tri uh, uh, tribe that has no contact with the outside world might uh, conclude that the earth is flat. Now, Dale, are you saying that they're justified in believing that the earth is flat? And Darren, are you saying they're not justified because why should we trust their opinion on anything? Well, and this is why I hate the word justified because it has sort of two different meanings. And what I'm looking for is the meaning that leads to knowledge so i mean in a colloquial sense yes they are justified because that's all the information they have but that doesn't mean that they're justified in making claims about how reality actually works right would they be considered reasonable persons um that's the question they have, i they have to no ask. they have no idea what the right. situation is and you know they only have a very narrow uh, idea, and we do have experts, so why should we consider them um, reasonable persons? The, the question I've been wanting to ask is, Dale, are you saying that there are no entirely rational non-believers? Uh, sorry, that sounds very hostile. Uh, you know me, it's not meant hostile. Um, are, you, are you, through this set of, of uh, premises, suggesting that it is impossible to be a rational non-believer? 
No. So, so that's why okay. I said that a reasonable person could, not necessarily that they would. And that, that's a very watered-down oh, standard so, to get my, my premise eight off the ground. I, I will say one thing, though. It's not the case that mere rational justification works for everything. If, if I just have mere rational justification on premise one, that God exists, the whole thing falls apart. Uh, I need to warrant, be warranted in saying premise one or premise two are true. It, it's only when I get to the stand, the criteria for identifying a, a, a G belief authenticating event that, okay, my standard there is rational justification. And in light of the other premises, I convert that to warrant. Uh, right, but your standards of warrant and my standards of warrant are a lot different. Um, and I'm still stuck on how someone that doesn't actually know the subject that they're making a decision on is justified or warranted in making claims about what how reality actually works. Yeah, well, they, they'd have to have a sufficient knowledge base to gain rational justification. If you're saying, well, there's some guy out, out in Timbuktu who's just never heard of the evidence for the resurrection, then you've got to suspend judgment. How, how could you make a conclusion on something you've never even heard the evidence about. You, you yeah, but rationally. Oh, sorry. Well, I guess I'm still confused, though, because the um, because your criteria is the every person and not the experts in the field. So the every person doesn't have all the information that an expert does. And they so have. they're going to be coming to different conclusions than the expert does because they have a lack of knowledge of the thing that they're trying to make judgments about. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how that criteria is a reliable or accurate way to produce justification or warrant. So the, the average person, because that is the minimal sufficient amount of knowledge that's needed. You don't need the extra knowledge. And right, if, but I don't agree that it's sufficient. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, so then, yeah, that would be where we'd have to get into warranting each of the premises, right? God, if God exists and he created the universe, um, he, you know, premise two is he would have a certain outcome. He would want, for example, as many people as possible, free creatures as possible, to achieve their ultimate purpose, whatever that is. And how do we verify that that's actually true? That the that premise two is true, that he would want everyone to achieve that. So that's yeah. where... That's no, how do you distinguish that the out? Sorry, Darren. Let me. I'll, I'll ask this. Tell me if I'm right. How do you distinguish the outcome we have that uh, that we believe is an entirely natural outcome is uh, is somehow distinguishable from the outcome that you're claiming that God wants that uh, may, by coincidence, look alike in your mind? Wait, what's? I'm sorry to jump in, but what's coincidence like? I'm sorry, I have to keep doing this because some words are being assumed to be like universally uh, accepted, but they may every time. Yeah. 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 Um, so That's coincidence. Exactly the right thing to... Yeah. Coincidence in this scenario, what, what would that mean? Okay. So, so Dale was, uh, Dale, uh, I'm going to paraphrase Darren and Dale probably are really, David, do you want to take that job? <laughs> so, so I'll paraphrase them both. Dale is, Dale is saying that um, he thinks that the universe we have uh, looks like the design that he would expect if there were a God 
that uh, designed the universe to bring as many people as possible um, to their maximum potential or, or to the thing that they are supposed to do. Darren is asking the, the sort of flip side of that coin from a naturalist perspective. We have a universe uh, where people have some amount of self-will. That universe might indeed um, appear to someone with a religious mindset to be the universe that a God would design. The question then is, how do we tell the difference between those two alternatives using Dale's method? Well, and I also want to be fair to uh, Darren's question. Um, so I think that when Darren first objected, what I heard was uh, Dale saying, uh, premise two, uh, God wants uh, his creation to live up to the, its its fullest intention. And Darren was asking, how do you know that's what God wants? Yeah. Um and so for, you know, an example, because I love examples, you know, maybe you um, have Plato. I don't know if anyone's old enough to remember Plato. Um, yeah. That's what used to pass for toys yeah. for us. Um, don't put it in your mouth and swallow it, kids. Not uh, the philosopher then, huh? Yeah, no. <laughs> I was going to start. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, maybe you build a nice elaborate set of Plato people. Um, well, it depends on the kind of mindset you have. Maybe your mindset is you want to make those people as realistic as possible uh, and then kind of uh, paint them and, uh, you know, harden them and freeze them so you now have some nice action figures and you want them to live out a nice action figure life. Or maybe you put them together so that you could have fun smashing them Mr. Bill style. Um, you, do you, does anyone remember Mr. Bill? Anyway. Bill um, Nye, the science I can. I can all, I can tell you that my Play-Doh was always multicolored. I, I never had like one distinct like red or blue or yellow. Right? It was always red, blue, and yellow. Is it Mr. Bill that I'm thinking of? Mr. It's Mr. Uh, oh no! And he get smashed. What wrong with Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah that's right. Um, so maybe you maybe God wanted to make us and smash us Mr. Bill style. Uh, but you're making a, a fairly big assertion, Dale, that God wants the maximum number of people to be saved. I think I. I it sounded to me like Darren was uh, challenging you to uh, how 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 would you know that? Okay, Darren, is that right? Is that is that what you were getting at? Yeah, I mean, um, you and Andrew both. Well, well, uh, I can answer that. I can answer that so. for uh, Dale, if you don't mind. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, go go ahead. But I, I have an answer afterwards. If that's yeah, uh, I think. Well, oh, you have an answer. Okay. Be, the reason you can think that is because, like, Christianity and what uh, Dale and I believe is that man and God are, like, God, man is made in the image of God. And therefore, we humans have, when we do, when we procreate or when we have kids or when we have people under us, like, we don't just do things willy-nilly or without a purpose in terms of, like, uh, raising future generations. So God being our creator would then have to create uh, a world where with people who have rationality and conscience and all these things with the purpose that they would in turn live up to their expectations the same way a parent uh, would like their children to live up to their expectations. Right, but keep in mind that when I'm asking these questions, I'm not asking what you believe or how you feel or anything else like that. I'm asking 
what can you demonstrate is actually true about how re reality, reality actually works? So I have a child. Um, I don't just do things with her uh, willy-nilly. I, uh, I don't shock her one day and praise her the next. Uh, I don't uh, abuse her one day and, and, uh, and play with her the next. The reason I don't has absolutely nothing to do with God. Um, if, if, well, if I were just to use some, some small bit of science here, I don't think I have to, but I could simply point to something like Pavlov's dogs to point out that uh, approaching life in some way that is um, uh, willy-nilly uh, would not result in the kind of outcome that I wanted for my child. Furthermore, uh, I have some genetic predisposition to wanting to give my child the best things that I can. And, and there doesn't seem to be a need for a God yeah. in that story in any way. But you do recognize that there are other mammals and other creatures that do not take care of their children the way that you just described. Um, well, wait a minute. All right. There are, yeah. there are other mammals. They don't necessarily take care of, the, uh, of their offspring yes. uh, in the way that humans do. Uh, we do see quite a, uh, as, as the complexity of the mammal increases, we see uh, sort of better care for children, but that's not the only complexity. Uh, some mammals like rabbits uh, reproduce uh, quickly and they have a lot of offspring as a survival trait. Uh, other mammals don't. Other mammals reproduce less frequently with fewer offspring and their survival is linked to better care of those young. So that particular objection is, uh, is an objection born out of a, of a misunderstanding of evolution. And, I, I, and so I don't, I don't agree that just because other mammals take care of their offspring differently than I do, uh, that requires that somehow a god was magically introduced into the mix. Oh, I, I, I think you're misunderstanding me because I'm okay, not saying sorry. that there was any magic involved or anything. I'm just saying that uh, the reason that we're not deists who believe that God created the universe and then he just peaced out is because uh, humans uh, represent, uh, the way humans behave is, is a reflection of that creator's uh, design. And that's and, a nice assertion, but, but, but it's still something you have to show that's actually true. Yeah, that's, I, and, I, and I'll, like, I'm, I'm, I'm building up to that, I'm getting to that. And what I'm saying is that you're asking how do we demonstrate that and that's that's pretty much God's revelation. How he, but he this, and, okay, go ahead. No, no, no. You you go ahead. I interrupted. You. Actually, I'm going to go ahead um, because at some point Dale has got to. Yeah, all right. Dale Dale is going to have to answer some of these questions before they get too too many. But I also want to uh, load one more on your plate, Dale. Um, so because we're getting <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. I, look, I've got a large microphone. All right. <laughs> is, um, is it can, is it related to this or? Uh, yes, is it, it is. It is very much related because I want to keep us focused on the epistemological question, and I know that uh, you yeah. know. So we can. We I don't want to lose sight of like, that. And yeah, so the, I was going to say, like, I'll just say this quickly, and then let's move on to something else because it's not totally about my thing, but uh, the eleven premise thing. But yeah, go go ahead. What's your additional question? Well, as, so I just want to tie this into the epistemological question. So it sounds like what the Christians on the panel are saying uh, is, you know, when you're probed as a matter of first principles, 
there's this other set of things that you need to believe. Uh, so with you, Dale, uh, you've got this 11 premise argument. Um, so, you know, if you're looking at a piece of information, you're trying to figure out what the source is, you've got, you're not using natural, uh, natural here again, uh, forgive my use of the word natural and unnatural. I didn't come prepared to use other words. So, uh, just, a uh, a, uh, an accident of language here, but, um, you are, you were saying, well, in order to come to this conclusion, you need to first have these other conclusions over here. And I heard uh, that some from you too, Mac Attack. Well, first we have um, th uh, this belief in Christianity and God. So as a matter of first principles, it sounds like what the skeptics are saying is we start with something basic and we can come to the truth with, um, you know, with a process of step one, step two, step three, and there there is no presuppositional step that you have to take to get there. And what I'm hearing in the Christian's arguments is, yes, we also have uh, step one, step two, step three, but there's step sub one, which is you've got to accept this set of um, theological uh, presuppositions before this makes sense. So, uh, Dale, I um, I know that this is not new to you. I, I would like you to incorporate that in your comments and just make sure that you tie it tie it to uh, an epistemological question. Thanks. Okay, cool. All right. So in the first place, uh, this whole, this whole, I, I respect, and I, I think I agree largely with Mac attacks reasoning and that sort of thing, but the whole thing's a misnomer for me. I am not saying we have to assume Christianity. I was not assuming salvation is our ultimate purpose. It could be the, Oh no, Mr. Bill universe. Look, I just say ultimate purpose here. I don't specify what that purpose is in purpose to. I made this argument as a non-Christian. This was my way of evaluating the various religions and coming to faith. So this premise two does not assume Christianity or that salvation is our ultimate purpose. It just says that we would have an ultimate purpose. Now, Darren's question to me is, okay, but how do we know that's true? This is a premise that I would need to provide warrant for, not just, just justification. And the way I, I haven't written it yet, but the way I'm going to be going about that is, Number one, I, I have mentioned on the show that I can prove, given that God exists in premise one, creation is a free will choice on God's part. It's not logically necessary that God either create or not create. And I, through Molinism, I give that, you know, there's equal utility. There's at least two or more best possible worlds. The world where God exists alone without creation is has an equal utility to this world. Uh, are there other possible worlds that have that equal utility as well? Maybe, who cares? Uh, there are at least two. This one where God creates this world and the world where God exists alone. So therefore, it's a free will choice. Once I got that, this is where I'll go into secular philosophical arguments proving something like the rationality condition for freedom. Right? There, there's various conditions that philosophers give. The ability condition, um, the... Uh, control condition and one of those five conditions is the rationality condition and that's what I would base premise two on and, and provide the warrant when I write out my book as to why I think this premise is sound that God if he created as a free will choice he would have had a rash a rational reason for doing it since God created human beings one of those reasons it follows would be that the maximum number of human beings possible achieve their 
ultimate purpose, what God, the reason or rationale as to why God created us in the first place, whatever that may be. Obviously, as a Christian, we say that's salvation, but this premise doesn't assume that. Now, David's David's question is, are there presuppositions? So, so look, I start with premise one, that God exists. And obviously, there are going to be built-in, when I'm providing the warrant for this premise to be true, I, you know, there are going to be certain things where I make those arguments and that sort of thing, but there, there are going to be presuppositions. I'm not going to go into justifying the laws of logic, which all the arguments are going to be based upon, and that sort of thing. So in that sense, there's a presupposition uh, where my arguments are deriving from, and I'm just starting with assuming that the laws of logic are true uh, for the purposes of my argument, um, because I don't see the need to justify that the logical law of non-contradiction is true in order for this argument to work. But outside of that, let's say I meet a postmodernist wacko, and they're saying, oh, I don't believe the logical law of non-contradiction is true. Um, then I'll say, okay, fine, I'll, I'll approach that kind of thing in, that, in my blank slate uh, thing properly defined and say, okay, here are some reasons why I think the logical law of non-contradiction is true. Uh, do you have any reasons to think that they're false? And then we could assess it that way. But yeah, it, it's true that there are presuppositions. I'm presupposing that the logical laws of um, laws of, of logic or first principles are true. I, I'm not going to be writing about that or justifying that in my book. Does, does that help, David? Or well, um, yeah, but I was mostly. Uh, concerned about theological presuppositions, um, because okay. if we're if our goal is to take a piece of a, a proposition and we don't know the answer and we need to show our work and get from how do we go from not knowing to a point of uh, warranted uh, belief, uh, can we do that with a set of steps that doesn't assume Christianity and God? Or do we have to assume these things? And it, it just sounded like as you and Mac were talking, there are some things that you know you, ha you have to assume first about uh, theism. Or assume the supernatural. Um, so, so no, I, I don't have, like premise one is God exists. So that I'm not just assuming that theological conclusion. I, I would be arguing for it, right? Um, same deal with all, all the other premises, but um yeah well okay so do you well, see what i mean though if we took a proposition that said uh the earth is uh 4.5 billion years old uh, we just take that as a proposition okay. uh and we start working through that uh with with epistemological tools at some point and it feels like early on in the process for you it starts with god and that's that that's just kind of a an assumption and i think what the what the others on the panel and what i would also agree with is no that's not in fact how we would show our work we would have to start with um uh, some some more natural and neutral tool uh and at at some point i'm not sh you know i'm not sure where god comes into dating the the earth there um to, to get to that proposition. And I, it, it sounds like once again, that both you and uh, Mac attack, and he's speaking for himself, but that you have a, uh, and also believe in God, or, and also believe in these theistic propositions 
as a part of the process? Well, I, I'll, I can speak for myself. I can say that everyone has presuppositions. So if you're talking about uh, a universe existing, we, we actually have to have uh, presuppositions that come before the suppositions. So when we say uh, the, the Earth is how many, however many years old, there used to be a time where there was no Earth. And so that statement, there was never an Earth before, that is like a 0 0.5 before the 1. Um, so when it comes to the issue of like epistemology and knowing what's true, like everyone has a system where they, they do this. Yes, but the question, a question for you is that... actually reliable. Oh, okay. well, and isn't it rational to say, uh, isn't it rational to say that it, at some point before uh, there was space and time, for instance, isn't it, uh, isn't it epistemically justifiable not to draw a conclusion, but to say, I don't know, and, and work backward to the things that that you can know. So, so I think David Johnson's question, and I suspect what Taryn was about to say, I think we're all going to say the same thing. Aren't you unnecessarily presupposing God when the thing that you should be uh, suggesting is, I don't know. Could I, could I jump in here? Um, so, so I want to back up. I, I think that David might be right. If we're looking at ep epistemic tools, for example, the, the Christian, in approaching a proposition like the Earth is 4.5 billion years old, right? So we can adjudicate on that using uh, epistemic tools from science, the scientific method and that sort of thing. Christian, from being a Christian, starting as a Christian, that sort of thing, I have additional epistemic tools, namely divine revelation that may be relevant or speak to that issue. And that's evidence that you need to grapple with. Uh, and atheists wouldn't because they don't recognize the Bible as being divine revelation or having anything, at least even potentially relevant to say about the age of the earth. One thing I would say though is the divine revelation is the same type of ordinary uh, epistemic tool that we have use all the time, that atheists use all the time, namely testimonial evidence. God was there, God created, he knows when he created and that sort of thing. So in that sense, if he reveals to us you know, it depends on how you read Genesis and that sort of thing. I take it to be mytho-history, but let's pretend it was literal history. If God is revealed to us that he created 4.4 billion years or something, then that testimonial evidence is something that's relevant. Um, and how does... Evidence all the time. And you, we have to assess it afterwards, of course, but there's nothing like totally foreign, just it's testimonial evidence, just who's doing the testimony... The testimony, well, it's God in this case. Could and, I how ask, does, and how I did you verify that God gave that testimony? How do I verify it? It's yeah. by proving that Christianity is true, by being warranted in knowing that Christianity is true, and further, that the Bible is sufficiently attached to the truth of Christianity. Okay, yeah, that uh, we've already gone over uh, that I don't find your... Um, your criteria for determining what is warranted or not to be sufficient. So just saying that um, you have a warrant that Christianity is true doesn't verify that the um, Bible actually is a revelation from God. 
uh, I was gonna chime in and say, all right, like the way the discussion is shaping up, it looks like everyone is like the atheist panel is saying this, like before there was a universe, we can all say, like we can all say we don't know what happened, what was going on before there was the universe. Is that right? I would say that's probably a fair okay. assumption. All right. So wouldn't so in a sense, atheists are well, I don't want to say so there's like a sense of agnosticism going on in terms of like saying we don't know, we just don't know, and that's the epistemology of the of the matter. Like that is that right? Well, that's sort of the starting point because we don't have, I mean, until you can verify that, I mean, there's some ideas about um, uh, quantum foam and that kind of thing, but until you can actually verify that, that is in fact what's going on, I think that's the correct place to be is, I don't know, because you don't actually know. You might be guessing, you might be hypothesizing, you might be um, creating fan fiction so that, um, you know, for like a superhero book but whatever you're doing if you don't actually if you can't actually verify that what you're claiming is actually true then i would imagine that the the best place to be is i don't know but the question is how like verify how many people would you need to verify to because there's a there's a man named galileo who you know he said like he said that earth wasn't flat and people like I can hear someone making that same argument you just made right now, saying, "Well, if you can't verify or you, if you can't prove it, because you know, like we just, we can just say we don't know or something like that." Um, but the question isn't who said it or how many people said it. the The question still is is what process did they use to get to their conclusion? Now, Dale um, has an answer for that. Dale says yeah. the the testimony of the Holy Spirit is uh, is how he gets there. That's that's fine as far as it goes. Um, but Darren asked the follow-up question, how do you know that it was the Holy Spirit? That, that kind of question. And so so it's not really a this is not a question about testimony, but verification. Of, yeah, guys, of some can kind I can I testimony. jump can I jump in here? Sure. Do you guys mind? Because you know, just what I'm hearing in the back and forth is uh, you know, there's a real problem with the starting point in general. I think there's, you know, I think with if I'm wrong, Dale, you can correct me. From what I understand with properly basic belief is coming to this at a starting point of saying I do experience God. You know, I do experience the census divinitatis or whatever. The naturalists are saying, no, we don't we don't start that way. OK, and our view and it's OK for us to say we don't know. Okay, but you're saying, no, you know, I, I'm feeling it and I'm rational to believe it, that it's God. And the naturalist is saying, well, I'm rational to believe it's just natural. But that's to me that the biggest problem is, is that starting point. How do you know nature is all there is? You'd have to make some sort of positive claim, which I think would put oh, the no. burden of proof no. on you. Am I wrong no. here? Well, yes, we don't make that you claim. Are, yes, you are. You don't make yes, any claim. Wrong. You don't well, make any claim um, at all. So well, I will repeat so my question the from the world? beginning. My question okay. from the beginning, my question from the beginning has, has been this. I'm not saying there's no supernatural. I'm saying, how do you demonstrate it? As far as I can tell, as far as I can tell, but, but the world that I see around me is yeah. entirely natural. Exactly. And that would be the question of my starting point, right? 
I'm sorry. I'm just trying to get get a get a grasp on where where how we can move along from here. So I'm just. I, I, well, I think that's the. I think that's the problem. Yeah, so so here's the thing: is like I'm seeing a problem with the starting point because you assume that a demonstration has to be uh, sufficient for you to believe when. I think if the you other want side me to, saying, yes, it has to be sufficient yeah, for me what, to but, but, but that doesn't make it true, and that doesn't make it uh, a knowledge. You see, exactly. I'm no, but the, no, but the, the claim that there's a Holy is. Spirit is is a claim unless you can demonstrate it. Now, how? Um, why? Why? I, I'm just wondering. I, you know, why? Why do you have to demonstrate your claim? If he's saying it's it's properly a, basic, quite a strange question. It is. It is, and, and that's what I'm coming to. Like, okay, so when I when I studied philosophy, right. Uh, in, in the beginning of epistemology, they had a map of ontology and epistemology, and, and it comes to how we come to know those things. Now, like I said, Descartes said we can acquire knowledge through methodology, right? So, but before then, I mean, what was what is the criterion? Does there always have to be a demonstration? Is it is there something that's properly basic to it? You well, know, let me so, ask. Let me let I want Dale to respond to that too, because I uh, you know you guys got to it. But is there a problem with the starting point here? Am I getting that right, or or is there not? I mean, you guys could totally tell say I'm crazy. I'm just trying to move the conversation along. Yeah, uh, no, I, I think what you're saying is is true. Um, that yeah, there there are different starting points on that question. Um, so, for example, um, Andrew if I, and Darren wouldn't accept uh, subjective evidence in the form of a properly basic belief. For them, there's only certain types of evidence that can count or would be sufficient, as Andrew was saying, to convince them that's, you know, of, of the objective sort. Um, I, I don't know if they would say, well, it also has to be empirical. They, they might not. I remember from our, our show, Andrew and, and Matt denied that and that sort of thing. But the point is, yeah, that they, they will only accept a certain type of evidence as being sufficient, whereas the Christian is wider, pro properly basic beliefs. Now, just to correct one last thing. I didn't say anything about properly basic these the testimonial evidence I was talking about with respect to the proposition uh, of the age of the earth uh, was divine revelation in written form in the Bible, a, a written document written by God, um, and that provides us with knowledge about the age of the earth, supposedly, or it possibly does. And then it comes down to Darren's point about, well, how are you warranted about doing that, and that sort of thing, like I... You know, I, I can't present a 50-hour lecture on all the evidence why I conclude that. Dale, you're talking on me. There's a very bad uh, uh, background static in one of y'all's mics. Let's uh, do a quick mute and then turn everything back on. Did that sort of it maybe my mic? You're muted, David Russell. Yeah, it's starting to go away, Andrew. It was your mic. Uh, apologies. Uh, my phone also rebooted in the middle of all that. Um, yeah. So, um, Dale, can you repeat your last sentence? Um, so, so yeah, I kind of forget. I, I was uh, so I, I definitely believe in the testimonial evidence from the Holy Spirit and PBDs right. and that sort of thing. But that that right. wasn't the type of testimonial evidence I was appealing to. I was namely appealing to the Bible, a written document, supposedly right. by God. So that's my problem. It's it's a it's a document that was written by men who claim that they had the same Holy Spirit. Um, that is this kind of inner witness that you're claiming, and it's it's the case that uh, we as skeptics don't see um, 
any reason to conclude that, uh, you know, that their claims are anything more than claims that have to be justified in the same way that we would justify any other claim. So Which should get to the heart of David Russell's question too. Yeah, let me ask you, uh, the theists on the panel, a question. If I um, found a book and um, I said that um, it was written by Zeus and um, it said in there that I could flap my wings and fly to the moon and that I really felt that this was true and that I was getting divine presence, would any of you take me seriously just because I said that I really believed it? So, so the epistemic tools that we would use, oh, sorry, was that for me or? Uh, I mean, for anyone who wants to answer, I mean, I'll would you, say, I'm just no. be honest, would you really take me seriously if I, even if I said I really, really believed it and I thought I was being talked to by Zeus himself? Wait, uh, okay, I'm sorry, Dale. Um, just to answer really fast, if you said that to me, I would, my, my inclination would be, to think no that's not true but if you said that you got this uh whatever vision or something i i it, it's not like i would necessarily think that you are lying Does right but you, would, you would need a demonstration that what i was claiming was actually true right yeah before and, you would uh, believe it right yep okay so that's where the that's where the skeptic is sort of at we've got people claiming that um that they are getting visions and that they can really that they can really feel the holy spirit and everything else like that but we're not getting any demonstration that it's actually true and so that's sort of where we're at we're not saying the holy spirit doesn't exist or god doesn't exist or anything like that we're just saying you know if you want us to believe that this is actually true we're going to need some sort of demonstration that it's actually true and i guess that's where i'm having the problem is is Okay, and what 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 is it that makes demonstrating uh, the what what makes a a method a way of acquiring knowledge by demonstration? So I I, I guess that's where I'm kind of coming. Are we having a difference in well, starting points here? And that, no, uh, it's no, the difference between being why. able to send a rocket to Mars well, and you know just coming up with different yeah. ideas. Here's oh yeah, here's I, the I problem. Your, I understand me. your guys' side. I do. Well, here's the problem for me. So. You're, you're asking if we need a demonstration after having further said that you have a demonstration. And, and so if you, if you were just making the logical argument, well, I think, I think uh, it is more reasonable than not to think that God did it. Well, we could have that conversation, but that's not actually the conversation we are having. We're actually having a conversation where not only do you say, I think it is more reasonable to think that there's a God, but that I have actually been in direct contact with that God. He uh, not only has he come and written this book, which uh, which is a claim that uh, we still have to chase because it's actually other people that claim to have this experience that you're claiming exists and they wrote about it. Um, but you're actually, in some cases, claiming that you yourself have been touched by this supernatural, uh, this supernatural being. In other words, you're claiming that there is an experience. And and so that is the thing that we should necessarily push back on, because you're not just making this sort of logical claim, you're making an experiential claim. And that is the one that we are questioning because it is an experiential claim that should be questioned. Well, yeah, the question, but, but how do you prove an experience? Like if I say I went to the Grand Canyon and you're like, prove it to me. Like, That's not actually right. 
right, right. No, that's fair. Experience, do you like the the experience of all? Like, would be like, like you you get what I'm asking? I do. I yeah, look. I think it's, it's, I think it's exactly the right question. The answer is I'm not I'm not suggesting that you have to give me your experience of all. That's that's not at all what I'm saying because if you introduced me to your God, I might or might not worship it, right? But you should at least be able to introduce me. Now, you could say, look, I had this great experience at the Grand Canyon. I went and I saw all these layers of sediment and, you know, I saw the river at the bottom and, and you know, I felt small when I, stand, when I stood beside it. I could say I might not have that experience, but take me to the Grand Canyon and we can find out. Well, what, what we were, I think what Dale was saying was that you, you, you get you, how you introduce someone to God is you tell them to read the Bible and that if you read the Bible, but that's have. experience of God. And when someone... Uh-huh. Okay, I've, so I've I'm, I'm going to more than you've had birthdays. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to jump in right here <laughs> because we're we're just about to leave an important epistemological question that has been teased. And so uh, as we roll into hour six, uh, let's see if we can uh, get to one of the questions that I really want to hear some uh, discussion on. And furthermore, I don't <clears throat> I don't have answers. I'm listening for answers, and so that's kind of why I'm pushing the conversation in certain directions. Um, so that said, I've heard Revelation come up a few times. I think that Revelation is an important thing for Christians. It was when I was a Christian. It's, uh, it is, as I talk to Christians, you, you can't have too long of a conversation without Revelation. This is a, a vital epistemological tool uh, it seems for Christians, you know, how do you know this? Well, I was told this through revelation and whether that's a direct revelation, uh, an internal revelation of some sort or biblical revelation, that's pretty important. But that, that comes to the question of reliable sources for me. So how reliable is an internal confirmation or how reliable is a holy book like the Bible or how reliable is a voice from heaven talking to you? Uh, how do we determine that that's a reliable source? And for you skeptics, if you don't determine that as a reliable source, it doesn't matter. What do you think of as reliable sources and why do you think those are reliable? Uh, so uh, let's let's have some conversation yeah. About, yeah. about that. Yeah, David, can I can I jump in and just get the panels yeah. just to finish this up? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm turning my up. I'm turning off again. I'm because okay. I'm slamming a sandwich and it's a lot of peanut butter in it. And I, I got to slam a lot of Diet Coke with it. Yeah. It's it's ugly. So I'm put, I'm turning the camera back off. All right. You know, I'm gonna do what you got to do, sandwich. buddy. Get healthy. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, like, uh, I guess one of the questions that I that I wanted to ask uh, is the absolute basis of your epistemology. Uh, what is the basis? What is the starting point of your epistemology? Mm. What is the absolute starting point of it? Where did it come from? You know, all that type of stuff. You know, where did it come from? And you could just give your answer very quick and then move on to reliable sources. I just want to get that out there so we can just say, okay, this is where we're starting from. This is where we're starting from and go from there. Does that make sense? It does. Who wants to go first? I, all right. I'll go first. Um, real quick, my, my starting point is that I'm a being who has rationality and a conscience. And so based on that, I can look at the world around me and analyze what's going on in it. So that's that's where I start. That's that's it. Also, I you know I did want to point out because I was thinking about this. You know, a lot of things we 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 come to know 
has all been given to us by by men have all been given us to us by somebody that has done the research has passed it down to someone else and then it's accumulated people do new research and stuff like that so i mean everything we've we've come has a past to it so i mean it, just keep that in mind as you answer the question that's right oh darren you were you go ahead you started before i did okay uh i was just going to say that uh, first i'm going to say it's actually it was a really good question um I don't actually I don't actually think that I start as assuming that I'm a rational person. Um, I think I'm a little bit more practical. Um, I mean, obviously, you have to sort of assume the laws of logic. Um, I think everyone does that sort of naturally. Um, but I. I just assume. Um, I guess it sort of intertwines with the tools uh, if if the tools match, if the predictions of the tools um, when tested match the uh, match reality, then that's the direction I go. Um, and then, um, and as long as they're, they accurately predict reality and repeatedly um, do that accurate prediction, then I would say that that's the, the basis of my epistemology. My answer is is almost identical to that. I've I've been watching my uh, young child grow, and as far as I can tell, uh, the tools that she has come uh, in two ways. First of all, the the genetics that she shares uh, uh, with both her parents. So, uh, if she were deaf, for instance, it would be hard to to teach her certain things, but she has a full complement of senses. And what I have uh, been able to watch is her development of rationality. So she does have the capacity for rationality. And, and here is something that we know about uh, ourselves. Well, that's more than you have, right, us. Andrew? No, hey, hey, buddy. I had, hey. to, I had to break the ice there a little got bit. Your, got your rationality, bud. <laughs> Too serious here. All right, man. Look, I'll, I'll take it. I, I deserve that. Uh, okay. So, so as far as I can tell, her her ability to cope with the world and the laws, uh, the the things that we call the laws of nature, or whatever, um, are both her capacity for understanding. We all have a, some some greater or lesser amount of that, and the things that she is taught. So we're very careful to try to teach her how to think and not what to think. But as, but as far as I can tell, what she doesn't have is any predisposition towards supernatural thought, as a, as a for instance. And so I, I guess my answer directly to the question is, uh, is that the, the tools of epistemology that I use are the ones that have developed over my lifetime. And the way to get better and better with those tools is to compare them to the world as I experience it and try to determine where there are, uh, where there are gaps in that understanding. But my tools come to me, uh, first of all, and, and primarily, especially at the beginning, they come to me uh, based on my environment. All right. Uh, so, so in terms of me, uh, this actually gives me a good opportunity to 
give David Russell some nightmares by bringing up our good friend Darth Dawkins, the presuppositionalist who came on the live show. Um, but yeah, the, I I'm think you your mic. <laughs> Dale, I'm muting your mic, man. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. Um, but, but yeah, the, the, there's a good two ways to approach this question about uh, what is the, the most fundamental. So the, <clears throat> the first way is with the ontological grounding. And this is what Darth Dawkins was talking about with, you know, God, God is a say. He exists. A, we believe in divine aseity. God is the grounding of all truth, of all facts god remember i gave that definition of warrant right it's based on having a set of faculties functioning properly in a suitable environment blah 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 where they're successfully designed uh at, at producing true beliefs well who's the one who designs those faculties it's god so ontologically speaking god is the very start and foundation of all epistemology and that sort of thing um but if you're talking more on an epistemic level and this is where I think Darth Dawkins was making a, a problem. He was making sort of an epistemological ought uh, from an ontological is. And he was concluding that, well, you have to believe this ontological proposition in order to gain knowledge. And no, you, you don't. Because ontologically speaking, God's created our faculties. People can gain knowledge through various epistemic tools without express believing in that ontological proposition about who created your faculty, that God created it, and that sort of thing. So epistemically speaking, the foundation for me are proper, are properly basic beliefs, that's where we all have to start, and logic, the rules of logical inference. That's how we derive uh, derivative beliefs from those properly basic beliefs. So that's the ultimate foundation speaking epistemologically, whereas I would say, yes, God, ontologically speaking, is the foundation of all of our knowledge. I don't know, does that make sense, or am I going to get muted by David R.? No, you're good, man. Uh, just to move along, you know, yeah, I would say, now just you guys can get into the reliable sources thing um, and go off of what David was asking. And, you know, don't all start at once. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, so yeah, with the... So, yeah, I, I brought up the testimonial evidence in the form of a written divine revelation and that sort of thing, so... Yeah, in terms of epistemic tools, I'm not, I'm not sure what David exactly wants, but, you know, there are various tools that are common to everyone. And when we look at um, a text, we have textual criticism, both lower and higher textual criticism. We have things like uh, source criticism, redaction criticism. We have ways of adjudicating the genre, so that helps us to interpret what the text means. The, these are all valid tools that we use um, to adjudicate the meaning of the text and significance where it comes from in terms of its source and the reliability. Uh, we have criterion of authenticity when we look at texts uh, that I'm, I know all the atheists are, are familiar with and that sort of thing. So, so these are epistemic tools that we can use to glean knowledge about certain truths from a written text, a testimonial evidence. It's not just that we have to blindly say, oh, it's written in a text uh, and we just blindly believe it, like with Darren's Zeus example. In addition, Christians, at least, also have additional knowledge that this text is indeed inspired divine revelation, and that comes from being warranted in believing the truth of Christianity and that the Bible is sufficient, the inspired Bible is in sufficiently attached to the truth of Christianity. And 
the the atheists have kind of taken us to task because they said, but you haven't demonstrated that that's true, and thus we as atheists don't believe you're warranted in those two claims that Christianity is true and that the Bible is uh, sufficiently attached to it, and that's that's right. But that's not the topic of today's debate. We're just explaining where we come from and the epistemic tools that we have. If you want, I'd be happy to spend. I, I spent like 50 hours providing the evidence from the shroud saying that that fulfills my criteria for being a G-Belief authenticating event. And in fairness, Dar Darren has said he rejects it. I, I didn't find his reason persuasive because it seems to me he was saying, well, I reject those criteria. You're not rationally justified with those criteria because I have an objection to premise, uh, oh, okay, uh, an objection to premise one and two saying that he where he thought i didn't provide warrant for that but i i think i've countered that and said i i do have a warrant for those and and briefly outlined how i would go about presenting that um and just so i don't misrepresent you is that is that right darren is that your fundamental basis for rejecting those criteria well yeah i mean as i've already mentioned here i just don't find your criteria for claiming warrant to be justified so when you say you have warrant or you um, have defeated an argument or anything. I just don't find your criteria for making those claims to be sufficient. But the the basis of that, right? Like, don't just I I get that you disagree with it, but the basis for that, from my understanding, was that uh, with premise one and two, um, you don't think I have warrant. I've provided warrant for those, and that's why you're like you think I'm just presupposing that Christianity is true in there. And I I've kind of said no, I'm, I'm not. Well. No, but I've also heard your arguments for the ontological argument, on the ontology argument, and all the ones that you claim warrant your basis for. Um, and you find those wanting. Yeah, and I, I just don't find that. Again, I'm trying not trying to be rude. I just don't. I don't think that you have a. Well, I'll just leave it at. I don't find it convincing. Let me let me just step in uh, very quickly uh, because Dale, I I think I understand what you were saying um, about revelation. Uh, can you uh, maybe and I want everyone else to answer this question too about revelation and sources and things like that. But Dale, can you tell me is it possible to come to the conclusions you have about reality without the revelation? Because as someone who has read the Revelation quite extensively, um, I, I have determined that I am simply incapable of seeing that Revelation as anything more than a flawed human book. And my understanding is that to see it as something more than that, you almost you need uh, the working of the Holy Spirit to to open your eyes to the spiritual truths of it. So let's just say the Holy Spirit hasn't decided to do that for me. So the things that you were saying, um, you know, well, if you look at Revelation, then you can see this. Is there any way for me to get there without Revelation? Because if you're saying that Revelation is required for important truths about the universe, then we are never going to see reality uh, the same. And that is that is going to be an uncrossable gulf. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, yeah. How am I gonna? Okay. So I'll, I'll approach it this way. So, in the first place, it's it's you can come to important knowledge apart from written divine revelation. You, the Bible hints that 
people have a sense of divinitatis, so you can naturally come to knowledge of God um, through that faculty that we are ingrained with. Um, there are certain other truths that the Holy Spirit can provide even atheists properly basic beliefs with and that sort of thing. But that set is limited. There's a reason God gave written revelation in the first place. So you're, you're never going to get all the, the knowledge just through PBDs or some other mechanism. Uh, there's, that's why there's a need for, for scripture, for God to inspire that. So in that sense, yeah, you'll, you'll never get the fullness of all the true propositions that God has revealed to mankind without the Bible. Uh, backing up your, your other things, so I, as you know, I, I do agree with you that no one, the, several verses uh, in the text you, are used by Calvinists, and I think they're right that they says without the help or the enablement of the Holy Spirit or God, uh, no one will come to a saving knowledge of God. Uh, you will never have knowledge or do the things that are sufficient to, to meet the criteria of, of salvation without God's input in some way. Uh, that said, I'm, I'm not a Calvinist, so I, you know, I have my notion of the Holy Spirit enables all real seekers to varying degrees to the degrees that they're a real seeker to come to that saving knowledge. Uh, at that point, it's up to the to the individual to make a free will choice. Do you accept that or not? Um, are you open to the witness of the Holy Spirit guiding you along or not? Um, yeah, does that make sense? I'll I'll let it stand, but I hope that we can have some more conversation around that because I don't I don't really have enough to put together a complete picture. Uh, it sounds David a little J. circular. Um, well, let, let me just finish this thought. It sounds a little circular to me that I have to have input from this epistemic source before I can understand the epistemic source uh, and know the truth of it. Um, I, I, if I could, if I could say something about that, I don't think sure. it, I don't think it's. You said it's irrational or illogical to say that. Okay, let's say I want to learn about. Uh, theoretical physics and someone says okay you need to go to the leading experts of the topic and you know you need to spend some and like if you want to really understand this you need input from those people and yes. here's a book that gets you started i don't think it's actually unfair or anything to say that you can't understand this topic more unless you actually go to like a good college or a good university where you can get more knowledge and that's kind of what we're saying here we're saying you can read the Bible, yes, you can read the Bible and see what it says about reality, about human beings, about uh, the nature of the universe. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit is what uh, confirms deeper truths like about what's said in there. Does that make okay, sense? But, well, not really, because I think that's a false equivalency. I, I, and to answer, by the way, Russell's question, um, I start with the experts. Uh, when it's something that I don't know, when it's something that I don't have access to. Uh, so uh, I would confirm, uh, uh, Mr. Attack, uh, that the experts uh, are very important. But you start Sorry. with a book, right? You, you well, start by reading for, a book. Well, let me, let me just say, I start, I start with the experts. However, I can get their information. So if it comes in the form of a book, um, sure, that's that's not the necessarily the first form that comes to mind in 2021, but it certainly 
a way of doing it. But what I don't need, what I don't get from the book is the idea that experts are a good place to start with. I already know that, and I and I seek out the experts. But when it comes to the Bible, I don't know that the Bible is a spiritually inspired book. And the only way to know that is for the spirit that inspired to, in, in, to, in, to somehow touch my heart before I can recognize it before for what you it get, is. Before you can accept it for what it is, because what well, we're be, saying- Before I can recognize it for what it is, because it's, it's not recognizable to me as a spiritual work. It, well, it simply looks like uh, some guys wrote some things down that was that they felt and was important to them, but it's it's a book like other books, and so it doesn't read to me or speak to my heart in some way that says no. Actually, this is a divine message with deeper truths. So that's that's a little bit different than giving me a book written by experts on a subject. But what I'm saying is that if you let's say you want to read a biology book, right? You get the biology book and you read it, and you, then you're like, okay this doesn't make sense to me. This just doesn't, it's not, it's not sinking. Right. But I, so can, I can confirm that. that it is a biology book and I can look at other books and I can look at other experts. And if there are some wrong things in there, I can cross reference. And I, you know, there are ways yeah. to kind of to do that. But, but with the but Bible, what, the what is that? A, what is that a book that's an expert own? It says that it is a spiritual, like, it, it is a spiritual book that that the way you discern salvation right, is but that's by, just a claim how do i tell that it's a spiritual book i can't tell that it's a spiritual book if i can tell a biology so, book is a biology book i can't tell the bible is a spiritual book so what, what Mac, is, a biology book would tell you for instance where the the if well if it were a human biology book it would tell you where your kidneys were um now it, it might be unfortunate for the person that you tried it on, but you could, you could indeed find out where, where human kidneys were by comparing, uh, by comparing, uh, the book to, to people. Hopefully you don't do that with a, with a lot. So the question is, uh, for the, for the skeptics here, for the ones of us who have challenged David Russell's assertion, uh, of the experience of the Holy Spirit, um, how do we find out where our kidneys are? You're, you're saying that there's a book. We're saying that we don't see anything like what you say is in the book. But you're, okay. That's the problem we're trying to solve. But what, from what I'm hearing David say, he's saying that it's not a spiritual book. But I'm saying it is because it does talk but about... But that's the kidney part. That's, that's the comparison here. Um, okay. You're saying you know where the kidneys are located. You're telling David that it's in this book. David is saying he looked at that book. He doesn't see the kidneys. Okay, so it's you're saying there's a Holy Spirit. This book tells you about the Holy Spirit. You and Dale have said, well, let me be very careful about this. I'm not sure if you have both said that you've had direct contact with the Holy Spirit or not, so I want to be careful about that. What we're saying is, fine, you say you have. We've read the book you've read. We don't have the experience that you have. How do you get us there? Because, the, because as far as we can tell, you're saying that there's a territory and you've given us this map and we go and we follow the map and there's no territory that looks like the map. How do you get us there? So I, I would just say, so in, in the first place, this is what my real seeker criteria are about, right? So I, I would say you have to choose to be committed to being a real seeker. Uh, that's, that's something that you need to do to get there. Okay. So let me just stop you there. Yeah. That I agree. I, I, 
I hear what you're saying, but the difference between that and a biology book is I don't have to be a real biologist to recognize it's a biology book and learn things from it. All I have to do is read it. Uh, and with a Bible, I have to be like a real seeker before I can even recognize that this is a spiritual book. No, what Dale is saying it's, is that you, you don't read it in the sense of uh, like, okay, I'm just going to poke holes into this thing. The same way when I read a biology book. You mean book, critically? No, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying critically. I'm just saying, you know, in a sense Because of, I, I read biology books critically, too. But there's a, you would acknowledge there's a difference between how you read a biology book and how you read other books, right? Or like how you read like a, a New York I Times. I don't think there should be a difference. Yeah, um, I mean, if, I'm, if you're I'm, making if, a truth claim about the Bible, and uh, likewise, you hand me a biology book that you say makes truth claims, hopefully I approach both of those truth claims with, uh, with equal uh, epistemic humility and requirement that the evidence equal the claims in the books. Of right. course, so like the, when the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, do you think that's, that's false? Well, I don't. I think it's meaningless. Well, you, you've um, got to demonstrate there's a God first. Well, well, in that that statement doesn't presuppose. Like I'm just saying, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Definitely. Well, well I'm thinking the first part. All have sinned. Do you believe you need a God to sin? You, you, <laughs> right. Sin is transgression against God. So yeah. you can't. I mean, so I don't know the, how finally we're going to divide these phrases, but that's too finely divided. So huh. sin doesn't exist because I think David, you said that to me once. What did I say? I'm sorry. That there's no such thing as sin. Yeah, there's no such thing as sin if there's no such thing as a God. You need a God to sin. Huh. You know, sin, I, are, sin doesn't, it is, just doesn't compute outside of God. God. Right. What would a sin be if there's no God? Well, I don't believe there's no God. That's the thing. But, but, but I'm trying to but understand. That, right. But it, yeah. so the skeptic does. So from your view... What would a sin be? Uh, sorry, I, I realize that you have, uh, so I know that you're having trouble putting that hat on. Uh, and it might just be that the, that you can't answer the question in the same way that we can't answer questions about the Holy Spirit. Well, um, can, I, can I come in after? after you, you, you can, but I, I want to I'll clarify with um, Mac, uh, because he, he hasn't uh, spoken much. And I do, in, I do like talking to Mac. Uh, frankly. So, Mag, make yourself available for another show real soon, please. Um, that said, um, your, your, your comparison to a biology book just doesn't work on any level for me. Part of the reason, so I like Richard Dawkins uh, a lot, and, you know, I've tried to read, uh, you know, things that, that he's written, on, at least on a popular level, because I'm not an academic, and, you know, I can get lost real easy. Uh, but I have never read. That's for Richard, sure. I have. I have <laughs> never. I've never read a Richard Dawkins book devotionally, and that's how I think you have to read the Bible in order to get what you're getting out of it. I I read anything I read from Dawkins or any other biology that a biologist that I happen to like or or a physicist. I read it critically. Um, okay. You know that's how I read these books, and it sounds like I've got to read the Bible differently somehow to get this thing from it that I'm supposed to, which, by the way, I have. I, um, I don't think that's what I'm saying. Like, devotionally, okay, so if you're, a, if you're an expert in your field, right, you're a biologist, you constantly right. have to keep up with what's going on in your field, right? You have to read 
biology books all the time. It's not like you read the biology book once and then you're like, okay, that's it. Uh, that's all there is to know about Absolutely, but how did we determine that the Bible was an expert in spirituality? Well, that's 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 what I'm getting at. It's like you have to read it and not just read it once or twice or 50 times you read it. I've read it in the double digits. I don't, the more I read it, the less spiritual it seems. <laughs> is there like a limit of where you should say someone can read the Bible and like be like, okay, that's it, I'm done. Um, How I'm is not that not just special pleading for indoctrination? I'm not, okay. Okay. And by the way, I'm done with my question. I'm going to turn my mic off. I know that Dale wants to jump in there, but this is very important to me. And so please continue the conversation, guys. All right. Matt, how is that not just special pleading for indoctrination? So um, I'm I'm over 50. Uh, I'm, I'm on the, uh, you know, I'm on the far side of 50. Uh, I've read the Bible more times than I've had birthdays. Um, I don't find it. I don't find it credible. Not only do I not find it credible, but I find it to be filled with the kinds of contradictions that are not resolvable with the sorts of rational tools that I use. Uh, I, the tools serve me well, as far as I can tell. You might disagree. I'd be perfectly fine with that. But because the book appears to me to be uh, composed of the kinds of contradictions that cannot be resolved, I see no reason to continue reading it, even though I have even though I've read it uh, yeah, more, many more times than I care to even acknowledge. Uh, in fact, I, I, in college, I read it through every month for several years. So I don't think that uh, simply subjecting yourself to uh, rereading a set of things that you think is false uh, is is an answer to the epistemological questions that that raises. And I'm not saying you should read it like forever, like in terms of, uh, I'm just saying that there's a sense in which you can read something. You can, I, I'm like, I'm pretty sure you've read it more times than I have, but the conclusions we both, we both reached are completely different. No, because you, you said you've read it a few times in a month, like you've read it through. And I'm like, I don't think I've ever done that. But uh, well, okay. So I'll I'll tell you that uh, a lot of those were on tape, uh, but you know it's it's yeah. what I call reading, and and I don't want to overclaim. Yeah, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> Look, Mac, I don't want to I don't want to overclaim, right? The, the, so the the claim that I'm not making is that I know the Bible so well that it's impossible for me to be wrong about it. So I don't want to leave that impression, right? But. I have read it, um, you know, I, I memorized 10 verses a day for a long time. And, and so all I'm saying is I, I feel like I gave it the sort, of, the sort of effort that Dale is suggesting when he says, well, you, you know, you've got to be a true seeker. Well, I feel like I did that. And not only did I do it, but I came to the kind of conclusion this, that was ultimately the kind of conclusion Isaac Asimov came to. Uh, he said, I can't prove that there's not a God, but I so strongly believe it that it's no longer worth my time to investigate. I, I feel like I went that far down the road. Okay. All right, cool. All right. So, yeah, I'm going to. So, so I hear what you guys are saying. There, there is one thing that I wanted to say. So, in my uh, philosophy of religion class, uh, we're learning about inclusivism, exclusivism, and all of that, that kind of thing. And 
uh, Earl, a guy named uh, Earl, Ern Erlenborn, we read his article on inclusivism, and he was focused solely on epistemic inclusivism, where it's it's all about, okay, which claims, religious claims, are true or false, and that sort of thing. And I think his mistake here, um, the difference between the philosophers and how they approach the question of religious diversity and the theologians is that it's not just about coming to true beliefs, and this might differentiate it from biology textbooks. It's not just about getting propositions, it's about having a saving knowledge, and that involves more than just having you know, the, the requisite right propositions in your head. As the Bible says, the demons believe and they're, they're still damned. They're, they're creatures that are going to hell. So it's, it's about wanting to save and, and uh, you know, justify the human and redeem the human to be in a right relationship with God as well. And, and that's why my real seeker criteria, um, let me just share this screen again. Um, is that popping up, everyone? Can you guys see that? Or? Yes, yes, you're good. All right, cool. So, so I give three criteria for the human being, right? So number one, just be sincerely open-minded to the truth. Um, I don't think that's too controversial. Andrew said he would fulfill that. Great. Um, also, actively seek. Uh, and there are qualifications. This is relative to your circumstances, your individual best efforts. Some people are smarter than others. Some are have more knowledge than others. Some have more time than others and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, you actively seek to the best of your ability. You're, you're seeking out the truth. Again, I, I don't think once I relativize it, that's too controversial. And then the final one is be willing to obey the truth. And this is one where people like David Jay, they fail and, and they publicly admit they fail. They, and I think in David's blog that he just posted, he said, you know, it's not just about truth i even if i get the truth i'm not going to obey this god i hate him and stuff like that so if you fail that that's a that's a reason why god would not be obligated to reveal the truth to you no no wonder you read the bible and don't get anything out of it because you're not willing to to obey god once you find out the truth so well only, why are you conflating god and truth um well uh, so, so yeah, in, in this case, in a Christian class, speaking as a Christian, then, so yeah, you're not willing to obey God um, and that sort of thing. And because of that, God doesn't have an obligation. So it's only when you fulfill these three really easy criteria um, that God has an obligation to reveal the truth to you. When does he? So let's pretend Andrew said, well, I fulfilled all these three criteria, but God hasn't done it for me yet. So assuming that's true. God only has to reveal the truth to us before the point of no return. Whenever that is, let's say it's at the moment of death. If you want to say it's after death, it doesn't matter. There's a point of no return, a point at which you're not having access or co being cognizant of the requisite conditions for salvation would cost you from being saved. And God could not allow that. So God's obligation is to reveal the truth to any real seekers before the point of no return. He doesn't have to do it on your terms. He doesn't have to do it today. Maybe Andrew, 10 years from now, will be welcome, welcoming you to the flock and, and saying, welcome back, brother. Um, so, so that's, yeah, does that make sense? That's sort of my answer in a nutshell um, for this answer. For this Are question. you saying that we can't have a uh, epistemologically warranted, inaccurate view of the universe unless we are willing to 
uh, worship your God that we don't believe in. Well, he's talking about spiritual truths, not just the universe. I feel like everyone, like someone living in India who's a good uh, physicist knows more about the universe than I do. Uh, I, I don't think he needs to read the Bible for that. I just think that what Dale is saying is that in terms of spiritual truths and his, uh, his third point there about being willing to obey and follow the truths, like that does play a role in it. So what's what the difference the between spiritual... God doesn't exist? So yeah, for instance, I mean... Okay, so for instance, if, if someone says, okay, I read the Bible 50, 50 times this year and I still don't see what's so good about it, and I say, okay, I ask them something basic about, okay, do you think adultery or lying is wrong? And they say no. Um, that's based on what Dale said. That's a violation of, of you know, being willing to, to like obey or, 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 or understand that there are things that are objectively wrong. Whatever that could be is irrelevant. Like, but like everyone does have uh, things that they know are not acceptable to do at, in any circumstance. Right, but we don't need a god for that. Uh, th well, that's a discussion for like another day. But I'm just saying that's that's what Dale's argument is, essentially. Dale, do you agree with that? Uh, yeah. So I was a little bit distracted, but from the gist, I think yeah, that that is what I'm saying. Like, if you're not um, if you're not um, willing to obey in principle, so. It, it, that doesn't require a uh, belief that God actually does exist. It's just saying, well, if he does, if the Christian God does exist, and I find out that's the truth, then yeah, I'm, I'm going to obey it. Whereas, well, what if we, like, sorry, what if we find out that the truth is that a God doesn't exist? Then you will act according in a way that's appropriate to that truth. So, but so are we still real seekers if we don't actively try to prove that God exists? What, you know, because if we come to the conclusion that the truth is that God doesn't exist, then don't we still um, fall under your real seeker criteria? But like, how would you come to that conclusion that God doesn't exist? I don't know, 15,000 years of written record and not a single theist has demonstrated that any of their claims are true. Well, but that's the thing you're saying. It has, that's what we've been talking about for like two hours. It's like something doesn't need to be demonstrated for it to be true. So like, like David Russell said, um, no, it was David Johnson. I'm sorry. Uh, said that okay, there's a there's a tribe out there that doesn't doesn't know anything about science, and they think the Earth is flat. And they, and, and someone says, well, it hasn't been demonstrated to me that the Earth is flat. Therefore, the the Earth is flat. Like like I feel like that's sort of the argument you're making. And well, and, no, what I'm saying is that theists have been making claims for thousands and thousands of years. As far as I can tell, they've never demonstrated any of them are actually true. So if I mean, if if every time that a god or a supernatural explanation has been proposed and we find out that that explanation is in fact not supernatural but instead natural, then, I mean, in a strict philosophical sense, we're not proving that God doesn't exist, but I think that's a pretty good indicator that that there is no such thing as a god, right? And that, and yeah, and that's what I'm doubling back to, like, there's there's uh there's no real point in saying okay I need to see a supernatural thing so that I can affirm that a god exists because that supernatural thing it's possible that it could be explained naturally like ten centuries after you're dead. Um, let me, right, but let me, I let me I've never been 
let me let me jump in real quick here. Uh, Russell looks like a man who uh, is uh, in desperate need of a, a wrap up. Uh, but well, you we're lost not ready. Andrew. You know, you lost Andrew. So yeah, I, know. I, I don't want Darren to get ganged up on here either. So yeah, no, oh, don't don't worry. I'm I'm. Here. I know you are, but <laughs> I'm a moderator. I have to yeah. at least show that concern. I, I, actually, Dar- this has been really interesting, guys. I, yeah. I I love the conversation. Yeah, Darren, so. it is impossible to gang up on Darren. Uh, what Darren would say is, bring twelve more guys uh, to make it even. Uh, so <laughs> 15 actually, but. so, uh, I wanted to go back though on something that you had said, Dale, and what, uh, Mac had confirmed, which is, um, that you needed, uh, this belief in God, or at least the willingness to accept God to, uh, get an accurate map of the universe and what Mac added was that you were talking about spiritual truths. And my question was, what do you mean by spiritual truths? What's the difference between spiritual truths and just truths? Uh, Because I'm trying to figure out why I need this revelation if it's only pertaining to spiritual truths that I don't especially care about. Okay, so so I would I would yeah so I I would agree with that. He calls it spiritual truths. I I I called it religious truths or something like that. So I think that we only have this duty to be a real seeker with respect to certain kinds of truths. I don't I don't give a tinker's darn about how many grains of sand there are on some beach. I, I have no obligation to actively seek the truth about that. But when it comes to religious or spiritual truths, they're of such a significance that it entails a duty on our part because they're so important. They are the most, potentially at least, the most important truths that we can learn. So Um, would you say that spiritual truths are uh, a part of even mundane things like who do I vote for for president? You know, I would say, well, I can look at a set of facts and come to a conclusion. Would you say, oh no, you need to consider the spiritual component to that? You know, what what should I eat uh, you know, as a mill plan, that seems like a mundane truth to me. But would you say, well, no, there's a spiritual component to that, uh, and you're not you're not going to come up with the right decisions if you don't have the spiritual component. I'm just trying to figure out how necessary so, you think this spiritual component is. Yeah. So, so put it. This is why I prefer religious truths, and I've got a specific definition. When I, when I was doing my study ten years ago, I, I what is a religion? And basically, the the essential thing for my purposes of study is it's something that claims to provide privileged or special revelation uh, through whatever mechanism, through divine divine revelation or inspiration, or through enlightenment if you're in Buddhism and that sort of thing. So I I didn't, whatever the mechanism is. Uh, So special access about the nature of ultimate reality, as well as what the ultimate purpose of human beings are and how we achieve that. If you've got those two elements, you're religion. Um, So those are religious truths that I think entail this duty on our part to be a real seeker. Uh, That that doesn't necessarily entail all spiritual truths. Um, You know, there there are parts in the Bible where I've put it on the back burner or, or something like, okay, this isn't something that uh, squeaks as, as some philosophers in, in say call it and that sort of thing so it's okay this isn't you have to prioritize right you, you can't i can't look up everything and that sort of thing but at the top of the list 
are the religious truths of the nature that I just specified. So that's your number one top priority. Other spiritual or religious truths are very important as well, but Okay, but are those are those religious truths integral to how you live your life? In other words, can you are there some things that we could agree on that don't require these religious truths or or do we just disagree on everything because this religious component is giving you information that that is necessary that I don't have? Uh, okay, so if I understood that question, yeah, obviously that's what Darth Dawkins was trying to, trying to say on that show, and he's just utterly wrong. No, we, we can come to know truth and gain knowledge about whether Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon, whether, irrespective of whether you have the right ontological beliefs about ultimate reality or what our ultimate purpose is and that sort of thing. So you can gain knowledge uh, without express belief in those things. But I would just say that knowledge claims of the religious sort entail a duty on our part. I, I don't know if I would say we have a, a duty or at least not a strong one to figure out, okay, let me figure out every historical truth about Julius Caesar or something like that. So there's a, a hierarchy perhaps. So what one more, the, just as uh, by way of practical example. So I watch... Um... Discovery Channel shows a lot, uh, and Travel Channel shows over here, like Travel Channel, uh, and uh, Andrew Zimmer and Strange Eats, uh, uh, that kind of thing. Um, there are you a lot would. of places. I do. I love them. <laughs> um, there are places um, where they drink blood routinely. You know, and you don't even have to go to some place where you can't pronounce. Um, you know, you you just go to England. Uh, blood's a part of uh, the diet in in some cases, you know. Blood, blood, pie, uh, blood pudding, blood sausage. Um, we're actually talking about blood, so it's um, and yet there is a a biblical component that says, "Oh, you can't, you can't eat blood." Um, <laughs> would you would you apply religious revelation to things like diet? And would you say that I am I'm doing it wrong if I ignore the religious component? Yes. So uh, assuming this blood thing is like a moral command, Mor moral commands are part, depending on the religion, are part of um, how we achieve our ultimate purpose in creation. So that would be part and parcel of a religious truth you would you would want to be a real seeker on that right. well there's there's a new testament uh uh you know command if you will uh paul is reiterating yeah you shouldn't eat blood so um it's not just well, an old testament thing well, well paul does say does say okay there are some people who like eating blood but if you're if their conscience is not it's something about consciences and like if I have a weaker conscience and you have a strong conscience, I shouldn't eat whatever you find uh, offensive before you. But ultimately, everything was made by God and should be received with thanksgiving. I think that's where you're getting that from. Um, okay, that's not exactly how it goes, but we can we can we can work with that. The, yeah, the point the point is the point is not the point is not the issue itself. The point is how we come to the truth about it. I would not look for biblical religious revelation to come to decide whether I'm going to, uh, you know, 
partake in the drinking of blood. Uh, and, it, and it sounds to me like, uh, Dale, you are saying, oh, no, if you want to come to the right answer, you do have to factor in this religious uh, component. Is that correct? Uh, so, yes, in, in the context of being a, a Christian, um, as a non-believer, if, if you aren't privy to warrant to think that Christianity is true and that the Bible is sufficiently attached to its truth, then obviously you you I don't go to the Quran for moral advice and that sort of thing. But in the in the in the context of being open, being a real seeker and trying to figure out well, is Islam true or is Christianity true? Then yes, I, I would consider um, various things. So for example, one of the negative evidences against a religion do relate to moral commands. Are there moral commands that are actually immoral and you know we've debated this on skeptics and seekers and that sort of thing or are there human factors silly silly commands seemingly silly to us as a as modern people that's potentially a negative evidence so i, I would consider those you mean like being killed for wearing two types of cloth at the same time yeah that that's a human factor that's that at face value that seems silly why why the heck is that important and that's where you get into debates and you know, where we explain why was that necessary, and I, I get into my Molinistic defeater and that sort of thing, and explaining about God giving progressive revelation and compromising to the, the culture of the time, but irrespective of whether that works or not, uh, yeah, that would be a negative evidence that might count if there really is a human factor, a, a factor in the Bible that makes it seem like this is written by humans and not inspired by God in any way, that would count against the truth. and. Uh, of that religion, and therefore I would consider it as well as consider the counters in, in coming to my mind. Uh, just just so the audience knows, I do not agree that there are human factors in the Bible I'm, I, as a believing Christian and that sort of thing, but um, in the context of questioning, is this religion true or false, it's something on the table to consider. Is this argument successful or not in the same way? You know, is God flooding the earth immoral or not? Okay, that's potentially a negative evidence to consider. So I just want to be clear, uh, for me, the, the oh. question is, can I, is there a way that we can reach across the table and say, okay, there's this religio-spiritual uh, realm of information, and there are certain epistemological tools that you need for that, and then there's the mundane world, and there are epistemological tools for that. Can we just quarantine the religio-spiritual stuff out of it and then come to the same conclusions about the universe. Um, you know, it and, and just leave all that religious garbage aside. Uh, or, you know, when we do go into the science lab or when we, uh, you know, are looking at things like age of the earth and origin of the earth, is, is it simply impossible to come up with the right answers without this religio-spiritual revelation stuff? You know, it, because if we can do without it, then let's do epistemology without it. And then you can have it for your own private conversations with God. But if we can't do without it, then I need a clear statement that, no, this is, this is an important thing and it stands as a real barrier. Because it feels to me like it is important to Christians in mundane things as well, and it's a real barrier between uh, believers and non-believers in, in even the mundane world. I don't think it's mundane in the sense that even today's society, things that are being, like the things that are 
absolutely fundamental like gender are being said to not exist so someone will say uh there's no such thing as a gender because it's a social construct and as a result of oppression or whatever and for us that that that's not a mundane issue because that fundamentally changes how you see the world and if you can compromise on something like that then there's pretty much nothing else that you can compromise like you won't compromise on so it ultimately becomes an issue of truth and yeah you do need a, a spiritual lens in which to view the world otherwise you end up going along with whatever trendy thing um the world says is good like i could ask you a question like is it okay for uh children to transition to another gender before something before they reach puberty or whatever and i would say no but someone who does not have a spiritual lens might say yes because precisely they don't have that sort of lens Right. But you believe you believe that there I so I think I understand your answer and I appreciate it's very straightforward. So in the example you gave, you believe that there are two genders because the Bible revelation says God made them male and female. And because nature does uh, correlate with that fact. Well, no, no, let's let's step out of nature for a moment because well, it said that you said that, that you needed you needed a spiritual view of the world to reach those conclusions. Well, spiritual view is to to ensure that you don't you know end up okay but if we take out the spiritual view okay uh, right this is this is because if you say the spiritual view is necessary we can never meet you see the problem there yeah so if 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 we're talking about something like gender and if you can you know that i can't get there with the spiritual view because i don't have it but if you can get there with a naturalistic view, then isn't it fair to ask you to just uh, state your case naturalistically? No, because I feel like we would still end up in the same conclusion where you accept that there are more genders than two. Yes, I, I, I would, but I would do it naturalistically. I don't mind disagreeing with people. People who are not Christians disagree on this stuff all the time. But we would, but we would have the same basis of information that we're using. And so it would just be a matter of interpreting the information. But if you add this spiritual component, then we're not using the same information anymore. I'm using this natural uh, information, and you're using a revelation from God information. And that tilts the scales. It's uh, not the same conversation. It's not, actually, I uh, like it when when Christians oh, use these uh, spiritual scales because it's really easy to tell when they're wrong. Like for this gender thing, scientific fact that is just wrong. Um, this thing that, um, like Oprah once said, that without God you can't feel awe. We know that's specifically wrong. They're making a claim. We know that it's wrong. We can. We know that whatever they're proposing is incorrect. So I actually like these spiritual claims like this just because it's real easy to... Well, well I didn't say it's a spiritual claim. Wrong. I, said, I said it's a spiritual lens in which you see the world. Like you, It's like wearing glasses, you know? Like you need spe some special sort of uh, prescription to see far and to see near. And I'm saying like for uh, a naturalist materialist, there's nothing wrong with, you know? Right. No, I I understand where you are, and I once again I appreciate your your forthcoming. Hey, Dale, um, jump in there because I this is an interesting issue about the gender question. We come to uh, a thing where just naturalistically, it actually looks uh, like Darren is correct. 
when when studied scientifically, if you only study it emotionally, you're not really studying it, in my opinion. And if you're and if you're saying, oh, but I've got this other information where God says there are only two, well, you don't even need the other stuff. If that's what you're using, that's the only piece of information you need. You don't even need to look at the science. The science is irrelevant. That's uh, once you decide that God said it. I didn't say that's the only thing I said. But it doesn't matter if you said it's the only thing. If it's one of the things, I the science is irrelevant. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not irrelevant. Well, no, it is. Because how much, how much effort, uh, you know, what does it take to, you know, move, move a car? Uh, it takes God's magic plus my pushing. Guess what? My pushing isn't really necessary. <laughs> uh, if we, if God's magic is a part of the equation... <laughs> That's what matters. <laughs> I disagree because God uses means too. So you pushing okay. is part of the means. Okay, but in in terms of truth claims, if God says there are two genders, and then science says, let's say it said there are two genders, one of those pronouncements is irrelevant <laughs> uh, yeah. because God, no. for the Christian, God said there are two genders. If okay. God says there are two genders and science says no, there are multiple, the Christian is automatically going to say, well, it's two because God said it. No, I, no? I, I feel like you're representing me here because I'm saying God's God's revelation of what is is gonna confirm reality. I'm not saying that. Okay. It's, okay. It's, well, but science disagrees with that. So that's well, no, I, I'm, that's not true. I don't I don't think that's true at all. That's not okay. True. Well, I disagree with that, and so our epistemological yeah, tools are at odds because the tools that I use say that there are multiple, and the tools that you use say there are two. Well, Dale, step in. Uh, you're not shy. I, no, uh, I was just being respectful. I didn't want to interrupt. But being um, respectful. This is skeptics and seekers, man. Has <laughs> has it been so long? <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So he's just so, yeah. taking the page out of my my book. <laughs> um, yeah. Exactly. So so I think that divine revelation potentially is sufficient yes that that is all you need if if you've got knowledge from the religious angle source of warrant that's good enough that wherever you can get warrant from it doesn't matter that that is sufficient for you to have knowledge if you've got it in that degree i wouldn't say that science is irrelevant because potentially the science could play a contradicting role uh and and count as negative evidence against um beliefs that you get uh, from divine revelation so you need to to weigh them and that sort of thing what degree of warrant do i have from this source of warrant what degree of warrant do i have from the science source of warrant and and figure out which one overweighs okay. well i need you i need you guys to be really honest about this how much warrant do you give god's revelation if god makes a clear revelation that there are two genders it is that not a hundred percent or is that only eighty percent do you, do you mix that with, do you then go and say, okay, this is what God said. But, now let me go research this to what, see what other people say. Like you're not, you're not, not. Let, me, let me just ask. So with your thing, do you have 100% knowledge that this is in fact divine revelation, that there are only two genders? Like there's no, there's no doubt or anything like that. Right. I, I, okay, then yeah, of course. So that's what I'm getting at. What you, if you, if you have come to the conclusion that this is what God is saying, then nothing else really matters. And we're not having the same conversation about gender 
because I'm not using a God revelation tool. I'm using something else. And in your mind, you're saying that something else doesn't really matter. No, no, I'm saying it doesn't matter. It's just saying that when, when, when you say something that, that does well, why not, would it matter? Why would what? Why, why, why what? would why would any other opinion matter if God revealed something clearly to you? If if it, if that's a hundred percent warrant, why would science matter? Because there's such a thing as again back to what I said before. There's absolute truth, and there's there are things that are true, and the things that are false. When I say there are two genders, I'm not saying that I, I don't know that there are people who are born with two uh, uh, different male and female organs. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that. Predominantly, what we see in the world is two genders, and therefore, when someone says, or when, if you want to call it science, says that there's billions more, um, I'm not obligated to believe that because it just doesn't mesh with reality. Right. Well, You're yeah, not well, obligated me, to me, believe Let it. me jump in, David, because I, okay. I, I think we've come to this point. I think that... You know, it comes down to what you trust, and I think the theists here are saying, okay, I'm going to leave room open just in case I'm wrong. You know, it, just in case I'm wrong. Just like science doesn't mean how many times has science come back and said, oh, we were wrong about this theory. Oh, there's more to it than what we thought. You know, it, you know, it, it leaves – you leave that, that much room because even as Christians, we believe our, our faculties have, have some sort of damage or, or – or, uh, fallenness to it, if you want to. So you're saying say you can't like that, properly so. understand God's not a hundred percent. I don't think a hundred.